The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Got Cross the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who, by the time this podcast is released, has hopefully been totally blown away by the Fringe series finale. My crackpot theory-slinging co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Andy will be joining Dan to review this week's Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be here for the rest of the show as we are back to reviewing a full schedule of our favorite shows including Castle, Go On, Modern Family, Supernatural, and the series finale of Fringe. And as expected, we're going to wrap this episode up with our Airwaves Rundown section featuring our thoughts on Justified, New Girl, Arrow, the final episodes of Last Resort, and much, much more. Yes, it's exciting, and this is the final time we'll be covering close to our original slate Indeed. for the ATA podcast as a... Another show that we started this podcast off with is unfortunately coming to a close. But before we get into all of that, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite section that's going to start off with some sad news. News with Nico. Sci-Fi Cancels Alphas One of the best original shows sci-fi has created in its post-rebranding era is Alphas, the X-Men and CSI-influenced procedural that isn't really a procedural. And after months of not knowing whether or not the show will be back for a season 3, the news has arrived, and unfortunately, it's not good. Actress Azita Ganazada, who plays super-sensed Rachel on the show, tweeted out word today that the show would not return. Ryan Cartwright, who plays our favorite character Gary, also tweeted the bad news, and Sci-Fi has confirmed the cancellation and has released the following statement. Sci-Fi has decided not to renew Alphas for a third season. We've been proud to present this entertaining, high-quality series for two seasons and to work with an incredible ensemble of talented actors, producers, and creatives, as well as our partners at Burnham Braun Television. We'd like to thank the show's dedicated regular viewers for their tremendous support. This show will be greatly missed here on ATA as it was a summer favorite of Dan, Michael, and mine, and one of our favorite shows to speculate about and compare to the comic book favorite X-Men and the NBC series Heroes. So, Dan, do you have any quick thoughts about this cancellation and what it means? I feel like this is because the finale was so wacko Hmm. and the way it ended. I, I just think the fact that it ended with almost conceiving like everyone died right. was a big turnoff to people. And I don't think it was what Sci-Fi Channel, I guess, expected. So I feel like that's where it came from. Again, I don't think this show was falling to pieces at the end like Heroes was, though. No. It could have been better, but I don't feel like the show jumped the shark like Heroes did. It just got ridiculous. Yeah, I think they made a few choices that I didn't necessarily agree with, but I thought that it was a very well-written show, and everything seemed to work, and I could see them going in a really take an opportunity to take this reset at the end of Series 2, or at Season 2, to start up with almost a new Big Bad story arc at this point, and I thought that was going to give them the opportunity for a renewal, because they said, they could say, hey, look, We fixed everything that we've been having issues with, and we're going in this new direction. 
but I don't think sci-fi had the patience or the desire to restart the show in season three. And I would try to hang on to some of those actors, because Sci-Fi Channel can, like they did with the Stargate situation, where they took actors, we were talking about Farscape, mm -hmm. and how they took actors from that canceled show and brought them onto Stargate. Yep. So I hope Sci-Fi Channel continues this process, because somebody like David Strathern is an excellent actor. Oh, absolutely. And so that's... That's, you know, someone I'd keep around. Ryan Cartwright's another person. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't miss out on these, these actors or the writers e either. Because there mm -hmm. were some Smallville writers we know that are quality and actually Smallville directors that were involved with Alphas. And I hope they get an opportunity to, you know, get more work on Sci-Fi Channel or somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's the best news coming out of this cancellation is that we probably will see Ryan Cartwright into a new vehicle pretty quickly because this really propelled him into, I think, almost a leading role oh, capability. Yeah. He was very much a underused aspect in Bones. We loved him in Bones, absolutely, as right. Nigel Murray. But when he took over the role of Gary in Alphas, I felt like it propelled him from being a supporting character to a leading man, or at least have the potential. So I'd love to see him get his own show going forward. Well, and I could see some of the shows that are coming up, like the S.H.I.E.L.D. show and Arrow right now. Can even that Amazon show, if that happens on the CW, scooping these actors up. Indeed. Because of them already having the fan following of the superhero fan bases. Exactly. So I could see that good. And another show that may look into some of these people's person of interest. That'd be cool. Yeah. Fallout TV series could be on the way. A recent Bethesda trademark suggests a TV show based on Fallout could be on its way. According to an application filed on January 8th, Bethesda is seeking a trademark for an ongoing television program set in a post-nuclear apocalyptic world. The trademark adds a bit of context to a recent tease from the Fallout 3 voice actor Eric Todd DeLums, who wrote, to all my Fallout 3 and 3 Dog fans, there may be more of the dog coming, fingers crossed. At the time, many assumed Dolums was referring to a new game in the Fallout franchise, but it now appears that the actor may have been referring to the show instead. This could be an amazing idea for a show, and I look forward to seeing whether it actually happens. An accident on the castle set injures two people. An accident on the set of ABC's Castle early Friday morning injured two people. Both were taken to a local hospital where one was treated and released. The other remains hospitalized. One of the injured is Karen David from Touch, a guest actress who was shooting a scene with a stuntman when they fell from a moving van and that she was the person treated and released. The stuntman, who reportedly incurred a head injury, is still hospitalized. The network is investigating the incident and monitoring the injured party's recovery. But none of the principal cast was involved, so that seems to be a blessing. Walking Dead Scoop Scott Gimple poised to replace Glenn Mazzara as new showrunner. Walking Dead supervising producer Scott Gimple is nearing a deal to succeed Glenn Mazzara as the AMC hit's new showrunner. Gimple, whose previous writing credits include NBC's Chase and ABC's Flash Forward, joined Walking Dead as a producer in Season 2 and was promoted to supervising producer for the current third season. He has penned five Walking Dead episodes, including this season's Hounded. His new appointment takes effect at the start of the just-ordered fourth season. Remember, Mazzara was going to remain until the end of season three. Walking Dead is set to return for the second half of season three on Sunday, February 10th.
Cartoon Network and Adult Swim series coming to Netflix. Hot on the heels of the, its agreement with Warner Brothers Television Group, Netflix has struck another streaming with the studio, this time for series on Cartoon Network and Adult Swim. Beginning March 30th, Netflix will add all past seasons of Cartoon Network's Adventure Time, Ben 10, Regular Show, and Johnny Bravo, as well as many Warner Brothers animations such as Green Lantern. Additionally, the service will stream Adult Swim's Robot Chicken, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, The Boondocks, and Children's Hospital. Everything seems to be falling into place for Netflix this year already. And that's the news with Nico for this week. So with that, we're going to bring Andy in here to talk about Once Upon a Time. The show really seems to be going the direction I wanted it to go at the beginning of this season, but we're finally where we need to be. And it's had a really intense ending, which Andy really was shocked by. So we'll talk about all of that now with our discussion on the episode, The Outsider. Mr. Gold finds an unwilling test subject to see if a spell he has concocted will allow him to cross the border of Storybrooke without losing his memory, and go in search for his son, Bay. Bell stumbles upon a vengeful hook in the Storybrooke harbor whose main goal is to eradicate Rumpelstiltskin, and Mary Margaret and David go house hunting in search of a bigger place to live. Meanwhile, in the fairytale land that was, Bell meets Mulan as the two set out to slay a fierce, fearsome beast called um, Yao Gai, who's been ravaging the land. Yes. Weirdest name for a beast ever. And also, we, we're we going to have to talk to Michael to make a meanwhile in the fairytale land of Oz sequence. So, well, well, this episode was good. It left me more questions than ever, actually. And I guess that's a good thing because the show wants you to be curious and and so on but there was a lot of things that I had more questions more than actual you know feelings for it and so on but beginning with the battle between Hook and Rumpelstiltskin has begun first of all I think it's I'm so grateful that we're finally getting to this point that we've been waiting for since Captain Hook's first episode and it was intense it was more intense than I expected like the trailer was like oh it's gonna go down but this went down like well, we I, thought I it was going to be more fun. Like, we thought this was going to be like a swashbuckling, let's go battle pirates kind of episode. And it was yeah. much more deeper and emotional than that. Because I really don't want to be on the bad side of Rumpelstiltskin's cane. Man, yeah, he whacked uh, oh the my crap God. out of Hook with that thing. Like, he didn't need to be even, he didn't even need to be like his, you know, regular self to do that. Like, he could be creepy, just like, yeah, creepy man, creepy cane. The yeah. question that l- left us wondering, like, what will happen to poor Belle? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like that there's going to be a situation where they don't have what they need in the town to help her. Because they made that kind of joke about how they were saying something about, oh, it's great we have penicillin or something. But we got to go back to the story, you know, book world. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I just feel like that there is, this is going to be an issue at, to, to help her. Because, I mean, she was severely shot. I thought she was going to die, actually, because it looked like she, that she was shot in the heart or something, but it went... Yeah. Those final seconds, ladies and gentlemen, went went so fast that even Clark Kent would have been that fast. Uh, well, I guess he would be, but anyway. But that, that well, went it was just like, like, wham, wham, wham. Indeed. Like, it's like, Hook shows up. Whoa. Hook shoots Bell. Whoa. Bell lost her memory. Whoa. Where is this car coming from? Yeah. Bam. Hits Hook. Hook goes flying. Indeed. Can I, I told that to somebody that doesn't watch the show, because they just started laughing. <laughs> They're like, that's ridiculous. Captain Hook gets hit by a car. Who's heard of that? Well, but the show did it well. Indeed, it really did. The thing that I wanted to move on to was that could we possibly be in for an arc where Mr. Gold will actually become Rumpelstiltskin again, both physically and mentally, with 
you know, with his fighting qualities and everything, because I think this is going to take him back to the, um, his dark place. Hmm. That would be interesting. You know, it would be kind of cool if they had an episode where he struggles going back and forth between the two. Physically? Yeah. Yeah, that would be... I wonder, I wonder what Emma would react to, how she would react to if she saw him, like, with that, let's what just call really it the crocodile skill, because it fit. I just love when... Um, I would like to see Henry's reaction to it. I don't think he's going to be that surprised because he's read the, the damn book and so on. So right. I think he has an ima- imagination, I think. But the, I think we, I think Mr. Gold is now going to be... He's going to be struggling even more because of this. Yeah. Like, you know, like, it, you know, he is like... Belle was like his Chloe to his doomsday. So like now he, I'm yeah. terrified what's going to happen. But moving on to the next point, more like a question and so on because how relevant w- were the flashbacks in the, this episode other than showing the level of courage that Belle had? Because really, they didn't really do anything impact it more seem, me. It more seems like, because I know you were saying how you're a big Mulan fan. I wanted to keep her included on the show. So I feel like they sort of did this to the fans to keep her a part of things, which yeah. is kind of pointless. I agree with you. I mean, we've talked before about how we think they should almost do away with the flashbacks. Yeah, because it depends on, like, if the flashback actually has something to do with something that reflects the present, I buy that. Like, I was okay to a certain degree with, because this episode, this, these flashbacks showed that Belle has a lot of courage, that she is not, she isn't just, you know, the bookworm and everything, and that she right. is uh, a brave girl, but like, other than that, like, Philip came out of nowhere. Maybe I mean, that, I guess just, they felt like they needed to explain how they all met, and I personally didn't feel that was necessary. Yeah, indeed. Like, I was not entertained at all by, you know, How I Met Your Mulan or whatever. <laughs> that would be such a good title for a show. No, but there was one thing that I was intrigued by regarding Mulan because there was a lot of hints that she gave to her background, such as being part of the Ember's army, proving her people in her life that, she, that they were wrong about her. Could this imply that this Mulan is actually based on the Disney continuity? That, that you know, that those, you know, because we haven't been sure if they're going to, you know, roll out that whole story, like, you know, with Shang and like, you know, it's like... If Eddie Murphy it, guest stars on an episode of Once Upon a Time, as Mushu, oh, he's not going to put on a, a, a dragon costume and just go around. <laughs> they would probably do a CGI thing, but I don't think, think Mushu would be incorporated into this universe because he's, I'm, I, I'm sorry, but character. he's too hip. But, um, but uh, I'm I'm glad that we started to get some you know background to Milan, but they need to do it better and so on. Um, moving I mean, some on of to these the next... characters, like it's like it's like she's someone that I could see bringing into the real world, and that might be interesting. Yeah, um, I was I, I would love to see Milan running around in Storybrooke, and yeah, that would be fun. The next point is that I don't know if I I like it, but I don't really like it at the same time with the whole Archie mystery, like it, that it got wrapped up so quickly. Okay, see, I have this bad sinking feeling about this. I don't know if it's necessarily Archie. Because really? okay. it just seems too easy. Oh, yeah. It was so, too easy. Because, so I oh, see, my God. Maybe it was Cora. That's Where what was I'm she worried in this about. episode? That's what I'm saying. Where was she? It doesn't make sense for her just to like set up all this evil stuff last week and just walk away. So, also, here's a good point. How did he know that it was Cora who attacked him? Because we never saw him, de- you know, her de-transforming herself during right. the attack. It was until she left the building. So, like, and does he even know who Cora is? Like, Jiminy right. doesn't even know who Cora is. That's my like, point. Cora, you screwed up again. Like, with the, in the season, after the season premiere, when you were like... But, but she... think about this, Andy. She wants to get close to Henry, and being Henry's psychiatrist would be the way to do it. That poor boy. I know. <laughs> oh, it's scary to me. Hen- this was a, this was a mysterious episode. This felt like the outsider. Yeah, I felt like I was standing outside this episode too much, like because yeah. I didn't really. There was so many questions. But I think it's better to have questions in the real world with the present day story. 
Yes, that yes, a that's a good tale. point. That's a good point. Some small comments about this episode that I had. I hated Henry's 180 about when he, per, you know, the, the scene when he's drawing the, uh, the blueprints or whatever. Like, he yeah. accused like, you know, yeah, you know, because we had to protect ourselves from Regina. And the second core, the Archie walks in. And it, it means like it was Cora. He goes like, "I knew it." I'm like, "I wanted to smack that kid." Like either that was like a weird dialogue, or that that was just wrong direction. Well, I wrong- can't believe he turned on Regina that quickly. Yeah, like I just feel like he's a smart enough kid that he would kind of debate it and question it. Could be like Emma, you know, I know she did it, but it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, like you know, he would probably say like you know, you know, because you weren't here those days those weeks yeah. or whatever she's re- really been crying and she you know she risked her life to get you guys back and so on. but it was weird it was really weird by henry so yeah the next comment and um, i had like it was something regarding captain hook's dialogue and it was some he was talking about when um, rumble was talking about finding his son and hook goes maybe he doesn't want to be found could this have implied that he knows something about his son that could possibly be peter pan that could make the, the peter pan theory possible still Yes, very much so. I agree with that. I honestly thought that Bay was going to be the guy in the car that crashed into Hook. Yeah, that's a good lead into that car because were we supposed to recognize the registration plate on the car? Because they were like zooming in so much on that plate, I was like, I don't know. Okay, because if like, are we what supposed did it to say? I don't know. Okay. Well, Nico, I think was it Nico? Yeah, we had a theory that possibly Rumpelstiltskin's son is was the guy that Emma was with in the Tallahassee episode in the flashback, and that's why he recognized Pinocchio right away. Yeah, I still holding on that Bay could either be Peter Pan or that Neil Cassidy's character, um, the character is Peter Pan because he. Because well, I feel he, like all of that could connect to itself. That maybe he was Bay, and that then he became Peter Pan, and then he becomes yeah. Neil Cassidy. Oh, that's a well, little. Well, yeah, think about this. He disappeared, makes... and then how long was the curse on for? Twenty-eight years. Yeah. So I mean, it makes sense that he could have been on the island. They did their thing. Cora casted the curse. Peter Pan or Bay, I guess, got sent into the real world and was there for twenty-eight years, and Peter Pan grew up. Yeah, that could work. Because if if the Neverland concept still stays in place, that he stays a kid the whole time, that could all fit. Oh, yeah. But I, we, we don't know how long Bay was gone to when the curse happened. He's been gone at least for at least 20 years, something, because yeah. the, the, it took a few years before the curse was made, which is also a good lead into our next point, which is like, isn't it a bit odd that the man who created or was part of creating the curse is affected the same way as everyone else? Should technically he and Regina be the only ones in Storybook that can pass the line without forgetting because they didn't have any... I, I, think, if the, Storybook. I, I think the idea of it is if you're from Storybrooke, that's just the deal with the curse. But that doesn't make it. How could then they have remembered everything for the past 28 years because they weren't affected by the curse to begin with? That's the thing that doesn't yeah. make sense. Well, maybe they just didn't think to put that in place because they never assumed it was going to break. That's a good point. It's still a little bit odd, but yeah. I, I can buy any explanations. And okay, maybe not the best way to get someone you know who's not familiar with weapons in our world. Rumble, you should have given Belle a gun who doesn't, you know. <laughs> I was so worried that she was going to accidentally, you know, shoot at somebody. And like, oh, oh yeah. My. I was like, not the best. But like, if you have Because she's explain, never used a gun before. She's not, you know, it, yeah. yeah. If you have to explain it to her and you just walk away, like, you know, just go out, aim it at her, the person, shoot and walk away. Yeah. Because otherwise, Captain Cook knew how to use the gun, too. Well, he's a pirate. Uh, I guess so. G- g- like, because. So, but we've never seen them use a gun in Storybook. We've never, we never seen. Not in Storybook, uh, but in the fairy tale world. We've never seen them use cell phones before. That's true. And. 
I, that I was I funny too. I don't know. It's, it, I don't know. I started laughing when when Bell called uh, Mr. Gold up. But it made sense for him to have a cell phone, but it didn't make. No, actually, it didn't ha- make sense. But that's I'm going way out of control. Okay. Yeah, we're looking uh, into it too deep. But uh, it was a good episode. It was. It ha- I think the show did what a TV show is supposed to do: leave your audience, you know, wondering and curious, curious because that just you know that makes you want to watch next episode. Which, right. if you have seen the trailer, you it's gonna be emo- interesting. It's it's we are waiting for this moment. I'm not gonna say what it is. You have to check the trailer with yourself if you haven't, but it's a, it's something that we all we we waiting for it for a long time now. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be one of those outside the box episodes. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but otherwise, yeah, good episode. A lot of questions, but that's just, what that's what the show is supposed to do. So yes, the next week's gonna be fun. It's gonna be really fun because I, I I hope Andy writes a certain line in this script that applies to where next week's gonna go. Oh yeah. Yes, Indeed. but we'll leave you in suspense for that. That's another question for you to ponder until our next discussion. Indeed. All right, so that sums it up. You know, good episode. I think it's just set up for what's to come, but I'm just glad everyone's staying in Storybrooke because that just makes the most sense right now because that's uh, the show oh, I want to watch. I think that's a show that everyone wants to watch. Yes. A quick and uh, mention before we go, next week's episode is going to have, after next week's episode, there's going to be a little uh, break because on the January 27th, there will not be a new episode. So I don't know when it will be back, but there's going to be a little break though. But I think we're going to keep you around, Andy. I think we're going to use you to talk about the following. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. So you're not going to be Andy less in that week that we're off because he will somehow fit into this some way. So you haven't seen oh, the I- last of Andy. All right, Andy, thanks for joining us. Gave us some great insight. It was a little fun discussion we had. A few jokes, a couple laughs, good time. So now we're going to talk about an episode of Castle that really a lot of people didn't like. I hope this isn't two for two. Got you not liking an episode of Castle, Nico. But we'll see, I guess, when we talk about the Castle episode under the influence. Beckett and Castle's investigation into the death of an up-and-coming DJ forces them to deal with the rough world of the music industry. As the investigation proceeds, Esposito takes a problematic teenager under his wing. This week's episode of Castle started out like it was having a hard time of deciding where to go. Because the mystery jumped from the lifestyle of a female pop singer to dealing with the rap music scene's criminal underbelly for ending up in a completely different place. An after-school special starring Esposito. In addition, beyond a few quips from Castle, the first 20 minutes or so before the focus shifted onto Esposito were strictly procedure, which was kind of awkward or off to me, because almost every episode of Castle, at least from my recollection, establishes a character conflict close to the same time as the murder. But the writer here just dove into the mystery, building up to the character conflict. I guess this can be considered as keeping things fresh, but to me it was dropping the ball, since comparisons between the pop star's lifestyle and Castle's celebrity experiences could have been used as a way for Beckett to tease him throughout the episode. So, Nico, do you agree with me that this episode started out having a hard time finding its direction? Or was it just my own personal issue of not being able to get into the story right away? Absolutely, Dan. I agree with you. This episode kind of dropped the ball. And it also dropped the ball on the whole discussion we had last week about the doubts raised by Meredith in the previous episode that were just completely ignored in this episode. I thought they could easily have fixed the whole debacle from last week early this episode to help the character conflict tie into the week's mystery. But no, they started this week off with a joke about if Beckett chooses a bad movie when it's her turn to pick, she loses her next turn, which just glossed over the whole issues that were raised from last week. It was like... 
maybe they seemed it to just completely forget the issues and maybe these episode orders were messed with by the network. That's what it kind of felt like to I, me was this one was supposed to be before that. I, I think that's what happened because before we went on hiatus, of course, you know, we get our summaries from TV.com mm-hmm. and TV.com will show episode titles ahead of time right. before the release. And the premiere episode back was Under the Influence. Oh. And in the couple of weeks, it did change. It switched. So I think you were on to something there. Okay. So that's the problem. Again, I don't know why they would do that. I guess they assumed that they wanted to go with a stronger episode coming back instead of this one, which was kind of weaker. Right. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But I agree with you on, on you know, this episode started out kind of wonky. Yeah. Now, going into what eventually turned out to be this episode's main focus following Esposito, I called it an after-school special because it was one of those TV episodes we've seen before where a main character acts as a mentor to a down-on-his-luck kid. But in this particular incarnation, Esposito helped out Joey, a 14-year-old kid being manipulated by a street criminal named Shane Winters. Again, there was nothing in the mentoring plotline we haven't seen before on other shows, but at least it came with some great character moments from Esposito, such as leveling Winter's bodyguard, the fake-out he pulled on Winter's in the interrogation room that proved to Joey he was going to get sold out, and the humorous little moment where Esposito showed up in the precinct with Joey handcuffed to him. So, Nico, what did you think about the relationship that was established in this episode between Esposito and Joey? Dan, as you said, it was nothing we had not seen a million times before on other shows that bring a troubled youth into the life of a main character, who then acts as the mentor role for the episode and then magically changes the life of the kid in a single episode and turns him from a life of crime. I actually hate this TV trope and wish it would die out. So, not my favorite castle theme ever. John Huertas as Esposito, however, made up for this lackluster story arc by having some genuinely great humorous and just plain fun moments within the story. His chasing the kid out the window down the fire escape and commandeering a bike to catch him at the next subway station, though it was off camera, was a great part of the story. Also, having an Assassin's Creed 3, my newest favorite game, and yes, a shameless product placement, was still an awesome point, because that game is just badass. Come on. (laughs) I could see him playing that game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm actually disappointed that Ryan wasn't there and they didn't have an actual scene where the three of them were like goofing and playing the game. So Dan, yeah, I was disappointed by the story arc, but Esposito was great in the episode, so it kind of balanced out and it was kind of just a wash. Well, that shows when, that you have a great actor, but he could make a mundane story kind of fresh and a little fun for us to watch. I agree. I mean, it still wasn't great, but at least he made the best out of it. we got to give him props for that. But my discrepancy somewhat with this plotline on top of it being mundane is I thought maybe it might have made this episode more satisfied if Winters turned out to be the killers instead of going back to the pop star who I called as the killer right away. Because I feel like with Esposito being the focus of this episode, they were trying to show off what makes him a good cop. And I felt there's no better way to do that than give him the collar for solving the mystery. So, Nico, do you think Esposito should have gotten called the glory for solving the mystery instead of going back to Castle and Beckett? Yeah. Dan, I think we both called the killer this week. However, I too felt that it should have been Michael Irby's Winter's character and that Castle and Beckett should have been focusing on the girl while Esposito was focusing on Winter's. And in the end, he was proven to be correct. I think this would have made for a better mystery and kept us guessing the whole episode, even though I did sort of start leaning towards Winters in the middle of the plot. And I think we were supposed to be led that way. But really, I think that they should have ended it with him. But I think they got to him too early that yeah. they had to go back to the to the pop star. Yeah, and, and I felt they could have done more with the pop star character. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it was kind of a, a weak resolution yeah. to the mystery again. But, I mean, 
I, it was yeah. kind of a weak episode, so you kind of expect that. Well, I don't know about you, but I kind of called the pop star as a killer right away because I recognized her as an actress who always plays a bad guy. Huh. And I think you might have remembered her most infamous appearance. From Smallville, From yeah. Smallville, where she was the substitute teacher in the second episode of season two, the title Heat. How about that, Michael? I named an episode. <laughs> yes, because he always dogs me for not being able to name episodes the DC Nation, so that's great. Because she played the substitute teacher who set off Clark's heat vision for the first time with uh, Nellie's It's Getting Hot in Here playing in the scene. Kind of a goofy scene, but... Okay. But speaking of actors, the guy who played Shane Winters, because Nico already introduced, because Michael Irby, because also a recognizable face. He recently appeared on that episode of Person of Interest, guess the taxi driver slash former pitcher. And that's kind of made me feel like the writers did set him up to get arrested at the end of this episode because they want him to return as almost a nemesis for Esposito, like the triple killer is the castle. Again, I could be wrong. So in the grand scheme of things, this episode wasn't all that impressive. But the question I did have for you, Nico, about Esposito and Winters is, was the whole Cod Solo and Greedo kind of thing that took place between these guys going too far for Esposito? I mean, we all know Esposito's a hothead. Got the backstory revolving around his juvie record makes it totally understandable why Winters would get under his skin. But was this unprofessional for his role as a cop? And do you think it's going to come back to haunt him later this season? You know, Dan, I didn't much like this aspect of the episode. I don't like the idea of our castle crew going all vigilante or yeah. Punisher style. It's not outside Esposito's character to be protective, loyal, or even a hothead, as you mentioned. But to be a cold-blooded killer, which is what he threatened in this episode, yeah. that seemed even a reach for this situation. Yeah, it was only a threat. But if you threaten a guy like Winters, you need to know there is a distinct possibility that it could become a reality. Thus, I'm not really a fan of that possibility, and if the show goes this path, I'll be greatly disappointed if Esposito ends up killing the guy. I think that winners could return as a problem for Esposito. Actually, I think that's a very likely situation. And he could become his nemesis, as you suggested. I like that idea. Yeah. But I don't want that to lead to a showdown with Winters and Esposito, where Espo has to kill him, because that will make us wonder whether he killed him in self-defense or to keep Joey safe. And that gets to be a very slippery slope. And I'm not a big fan of one of our favorite clean-cut cops, yeah. Esposito. Yes, he's a hothead, but he is by the book clean. Yes, he backed up Beckett and maybe broke some rules, but he only did that because it was her, you know? Yeah. He wouldn't do that for just anyone. He'd do it for Ryan, Castle, and Beckett, and that's about it. So, I don't know. I just don't like where the possibilities of this story could go. Now, is it possible that he could come back with, like, Esposito on an episode with, like, a lawsuit kind of thing? Where he's like, oh, this guy threatened me. Like, he came out and said he was going to kill me and do this and kind of go after him legally. I don't think that's his style. I don't think that's okay. Winters' style. It's or, maybe too sophisticated for him. Okay, or or maybe he comes in and just starts, you know, messing with him. Like, he busts up his apartment or, you know stuff like that. That seems more likely. Okay. I mean, I, I think I agree with you. I don't think the, the killing him is a good thing. I do think that possibly the threat, the process of threatening him is going to cut him back and bite Esposito in the butt. But I don't think it's going to be anything where he's going to kill a cold-blooded guy. Yeah. I, mean, I thought that was a kind of, I guess, a loose threat there. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think that Winters knows that. But I right. think we know that he, I think, was just kind of trying to scare the guy. Okay. At least that, that's what I want to go with. I don't know if that's the right the writers are thinking. Right. Yikes. But even if he comes back or not, I think one character I'm pretty positive we're going to see again is Joey, based on what we saw at the end of the mid-season finale, because the writers seem gung-ho about Esposito helping people down on their luck. 
Can I think in the long run, Joey's going to be a good way to do this. Because mentoring the kid is going to allow more exploration into Esposito, overcoming the rough life he had growing up, and the time he spent in the military. Because these things are stuff that I really am interested in looking at, because they've made Esposito one of my favorite supporting characters on television. Out of the sheer respect for this guy being able to do these things. So, Nico, is mentoring Joey the right way for the writers to go about giving story development to Esposito outside of the precinct? Or do you think they should focus on other things for his characters, like getting back to Lady or him having some sort of romance? Yeah, Dan, I don't think it's a bad way to go to get us more invested in Esposito's life outside the precinct, but I would rather see him and Lainey work out their relationship. Also, what happened to that family he helped on Christmas? Is this Joey story arc a way of revisiting the story we saw start in that episode with a new actor or a new situation, which also allowed for the Winters character to be brought in and that Nemesis story arc to start? I just don't know if this is the way I wanted his story to go. But one thing I can say is Castle has a way of scaring me and then making me feel foolish for ever doubting them, much right. like Fringe used to do to us all the time. So yeah. I'm I'm not worried right now. I just my mind's going all these different places it could go and a lot of them I don't like but I'm sure the one that they pick will be will be great well the other thing is every show has a weak episode oh yeah and, and this might have been one of those and the network might have known that which is why they switched episodes like they did the other thing is I think this was a mid-season revamp on what they wanted to do with Esposito as well I think they figured him doing with that family, it was too much baggage with the mother there. And I don't think there was enough conflict there. So I feel yeah. like this is a amendment on what they wanted to do with that plot line. Okay. Not that, I don't know if that's the best way to go. They certainly think it is. So we're just going to go with that. Okay. Yeah, if you're good with that. Yeah, I am. Okay. So again, I just think we'll have to see where Castle wanders next week. I think it would be smart to address Beckett's concerns about her relationship with Castle next week. Yeah, and there's definitely the possibility that they can since these episodes we think were switched out of order. Yeah. So the one that was supposed to come right after that episode is probably going to be next week. So I guess that'll heal all the damage that's been done. <laughs> we can hope so. I hope so. I thought I heard of a lot of shows dropping the ball in season five. So let's hope that's not where we're going. All right. So now we're going to talk about an episode of Go On that took the show's overarching story arc in a direction I wasn't expecting, but it's still continuing with the laugh. So I guess we could be happy with the show in that regard. So let's talk about the Go On episode. Go Doll! Ryan decides to go on his first date, but he's on a slippery slope when snowboarder Sean White, playing himself, ends up being his romantic rival. Elsewhere, Yolanda lands a job at a hospital. Can I'm going to say, Sean White, he really does kind of look like Animal. <laughs> that was a good reference to the episode. Indeed. But my favorite comedic moment from this week's episode, come go on. I don't know why the guy makes me laugh. I know you think he's creepy, Nico, but... Mr. No, actually, I like him now. Okay. I, I just didn't like him in the first episode. Okay, well, Mr. K, achieving the goal written on his gold doll, finding a new way of expressing group excitement by drumming on their legs. Go gold doll. Go gold doll. Good, you've added drumming to the chanting. That is new. My goal was to find a new way to express group excitement. Go gold doll. Get busy. Life's better with gold doll. Oh wow! Everybody's drumming. That's so fun. That was probably my favorite part. Just it's fun. I mean, who gets away with doing that in public? Mr. K. So hey, I loved it. Also, I was thoroughly amused at Matt Perry's attempt to get a Batman impersonation. Make the night taste cold justice, Ryan. He'd go get the girl. 
And I thought it was pretty clever how Lauren, or I guess the writers, were able to bring the conflicts of this episode back around to Mean Girls, starring Rachel McAdams, who the group suggested Ryan should date at the beginning of this episode. You have the entire world to tear you down, to act like a mean girl in junior high. Yeah, why are girls so mean to each other? Big words coming from another mean girl. Socko. Oh, I love it when there's a unifying theme. Yes. Ryan, how would you characterize your behavior with Carrie? It wasn't great. It was like... Like that of a 15-year-old girl? Perhaps not unlike star of Mean Girls, Rachel McAdams? Oh, oh my gosh. She brought it all together. Oh, yes. That was impressive tactics there. Great segue. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Go On? Yeah, my favorite comedic moment from this week's Go On was Sean White's guest spots. My dad and I watched this episode together, and we couldn't help but laugh at his lines, his hair flip, and just remark at how great he was in this episode. You have a gold doll too? Dude, this other eye doesn't get filled in until I finish my medieval fantasy novel. I know, I owe you 20 pages today. What the hell was that? I thought you said you would let me have it. Did I do the hair thing again? Sorry, man. Reflex. You just did it for me. I like it, man. I don't know what to tell you. I love the bromance mixed with competing for the girl relationship he and Ryan had in the episode. And really, Sean White might have been my favorite sports celebrity guest star yet. I know you feel that, and I feel it, and I'm sure even Animal over there can feel it. I kind of can. Thanks, man. Wow, going up against me with no gold medals and brown hair. That takes yaitsa. That's Russian for cojones. The next Olympics is there, so I'm picking it up. Although Costas was pretty great last week, so it's kind of a toss-up between those two. But Sean White was great in this episode. Yeah, they're really doing a nice job with that, those celebrity guest spots. I mean, sports celebrity guest spots. I don't think any of them have really been wasted. No, and Sean White was great because he just got to play himself, you know? (laughs) Maybe an exaggerated version of himself, but still, not a difficult task for an actor, but he he did it well regardless. Yeah, it kind of acts as like almost an SNL spot kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it functioned that way. It was great. And there's one last thing before we move on and go on. <laughs> That's pretty funny. What was up with there being an attraction between Ryan and Carrie? Were they just addressing it so we would eliminate the possibility of them hooking up out of our heads? Or do you think this is going to be a continuing conflict, Nico? You know, I thought when we first got introduced to this story that there was a possibility of this being one of the eventual outcomes because Carrie was there for him when he was at his darkest time, right after Janie died, and she kind of kept him going. And there definitely is more than just an employee-employer relationship there. They're friends. Yeah. And we saw that in this episode as they became girlfriends. And when that happens, you know, there's always the potential that there could be feelings developing that. And I think they addressed it here because it's the first time they've really possibly explored that. And so I think it's going to be something that's going to play in the background because the Lauren thing is another option that I saw from the very beginning as well. But she's she's engaged. And so there's that she's kind of like off the table for right now. Yeah. So I think the carry thing is a possible maybe placeholder and the first real relationship he gets into before maybe ultimately coming back to the Lauren thing in later seasons. If we have a Ross and Rachel sort of relationship, not really a Ross and Rachel relationship, but since, you know, Matthew Perry was a friends person, I was thinking friends. You know, and, and maybe more with the Ryan and Carrie, you'd, you'd, you'd almost go with his Chandler and Monica relationship where they were really good friends. And then all of a sudden th- that switch flipped and then they were dating. Yeah. So I don't know. 
I I kept envisioning Carrie going with uh, John Cho's character. That's oh, what okay. I thought was going on, but evidently that's not right. <laughs> I mean, I okay. just thought Carrie was a little young for uh, Matthew Perry. I know I love him, but yeah, that's he's what they keep, up there. That's what they keep saying. You know, that was the joke at the yeah. end was a way for them to yeah. cool their their thoughts or yeah. you know, kind of just make it. You know, you're so old. You're so old. I wasn't even born when Return of the Jedi came out. <laughs> you and me. <laughs> And that was fun. I liked that. Yeah. Uh, do you think possibly that Ryan and Carrie could get together? I do. And then it not work out, and then it, she kind of becomes almost like a like a Robin character, throwing out uh, How I Met Your Mother reference there? Uh, I don't think he's going to be hung up on her. Well, I, I don't mean hung up on her, but like they go back to being friends. Yeah, that would be the way I think I'd see it. Okay, that that's more what I meant with that. Yeah, okay. That settles that on me. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there because it was just a surprise to me, but you're making me feel a little bit better about that, so I appreciate that, Nico. No problem. And then we're going to move on to probably one of the funniest sitcoms episodes of the week so far, and that's the Modern Family episode, Party Crasher. Jay and Gloria plan a surprise party for Manny's 14th birthday. Haley's interest in an older man is concerned for her parents. Cameron worries that Lily is closer to Mitchell. On last week's podcast, Nico made some extremely legitimate points about how this show is evolving into a dramedy. Kind of like NBC's Parenthood, because that's the best example I could come up with. And if you saw this week's episode, I don't think any of us could have said that you were wrong, Nico. But with this Fred Savage-directed episode, we went back to the comedy that earned this show Emmys. And I loved it to the point that this entire episode was just filled with a ton of favorite comedic moments for me, featuring almost all of our favorite characters. However, if I had to pick one, I would have to go with a toss-up between Manny being surprised by his entire family right after experiencing his first kiss. Quick, I don't want the neighbors to see us. You sure we're alone? Yeah, they're not home until six. Good, because I wanted to give you a birthday present. Actually, I'd like to see your face. <laughs> it's harsh, I know. I've begged them to put in a dimmer. No! Surprise. Manny, we're so sorry we didn't mention. What? To- Ruin the greatest moment of my life? Thanks again, Mom. Oi. And Cab constantly, inadvertently injuring Lily throughout the entire episode. Ow! Cam! Oh, please do not blame me. We always knew there was a strong possibility she'd be a terrible driver. Cologne, both of these moments were pretty gut-busting funny, but what topped them off was Luke's comments about these incidents while filming them on camera for Manny's birthday video. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment, or I guess moments, from this classic episode of Modern Family? Dan, as usual, I loved the Luke's running commentary as he filmed the surprise party. Some great lines there. And the surprise becomes the surpriser. This party had everything. But I also have to agree that Manny's first kiss being witnessed by his entire family was pretty great too. Phil's trying so desperately hard to be cool with the creeper jeans guy Haley brought home was great as well. I'm gonna fight him. Phil. No, Claire, I'm gonna fight him up real nice. I'm so conflicted. What you're saying makes sense up here, but it's not what I want to do here. I just feel so damn comfortable down here. Really, a much funnier episode this week, but I still felt that it was more dramatic than previous seasons. And you know what? Now that I flipped that switch in my brain, I'm enjoying these episodes much more lately. So I think for me anyway, once I made that association last week or a couple weeks ago, that it just has gotten better in my mind. So it's kind of a perception issue with me and... Maybe now that I have the right perception, it's getting a lot better. But this was a great episode regardless. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I was very, very pleased with this 
episode. Probably maybe the best episode of the season. Yeah, maybe. I, yeah. I think that it's definitely up there. I think the one that we came back with the premiere when Haley got kicked out of school and everything like that, that was yeah. pretty funny as well. That was a solid episode as well. I agree with you on that one. All right, we're going to move on to an explosive and absolutely exciting mid-season return of Supernatural. Probably one of the best ones they've had in a very long time. Good title, Torn and Fray. Naomi informs Castiel that Crowley holds an angel captive and he must save him so that Crowley doesn't learn their secrets. Castiel asks for Dean's help. Sam meets with Amelia, who asks him to choose whether to stay with her or never contact her again. With the sixth and seventh seasons of this show being such a train wreck, I had forgotten how excited I was for Supernatural to return after watching this eighth season's mid-season finale. In fact, this forgetfulness contributed to my enjoyment of this episode, because it left me pleasantly surprised. In other words, Supernatural's mid-season premieres normally addresses the cliffhanger that leads us into a break for the holidays, in the first five minutes of the episode, and then brush it underneath the rug, or sometimes don't even talk about it at all, like in the Sarah Gamble days. But now with Jeremy Carver introducing, interweaving plot lines to this show, where the Winchesters are now fighting for goals revolving around friendship, love, and even retirement from hunting, instead of just simply seeking revenge on a monster, we got an episode that did an excellent job of addressing every single one of these plot lines without feeling congested or muddled. And what I thought was a huge telltale sign that the writer, a newcomer to this show, named Jenny Clyde, did a good job of was that the action scenes seemed to be drawn out to fill up the episode's 42 minutes. So even though a lot was covered, it really didn't feel rushed, leaving plenty of time for the writing to work its magic. So Nico, did you feel that this episode did a solid job of addressing all the plot lines that are taking place on this show in a way that didn't feel rushed? Got us back in the swing of things? Yeah, Dan. The pacing of this episode was amazing. When it ended, I looked at my watch and couldn't believe that the 43 minutes where they went. This episode did not feel rushed at all and really tackled everything and all the plot lines we'd seen in the episodes leading up to the mid-season finale. Just to recap, there was Naomi and the Angels, Crowley, Kevin, Benny, Sam and Dean, Cass, flashbacks to the death of the hunter in the mid-season finale and some flashbacks to Castiel being tortured. And I'm sure I'm missing more plot lines, but they were all masterfully woven together into a very coherent, progressive storytelling structure that worked oh so well. It was great technique this week, as well as a great story. Yeah, and since this episode really had so many plot lines, I think the best way to tackle them is by structuring this review with me almost addressing each of the arcs individually, and Nico following that up with his own thoughts. But at the end, I'm going to bring it all together, get to somewhat of a concern I have about this next half of the season, based on the way this episode ended. The first plot line we're going to talk about is the reunion between Sam and Amelia. Because I know we've been praising the chemistry between these two lovers all season, and I think the flashbacks built this scene up to everything it needed to be. I mean, Amelia giving Sam that ultimatum to show up at 7.30 the next night or never contact her again was a total punch in the gut. Because we knew that tragically, something was going to stop Sam from showing up. It's trademark TV. However, my point with this is Supernatural is not normally characterized as a show for shipping, but I'm rooting for Sam and Amelia because this relationship, being outside the normal constraints for the series, has gotten me invested in this show again based on its feeling of freshness. So, Nico, what were your thoughts on the Sam and Amelia scenes in this episode? Did the flashbacks build up to them well? 
Dan, you know me. I'm a sucker for a good flashback sequence, and Supernatural did it so well this season that I think that I've just about praised it each and every week this fall. So yeah, the flashbacks got us to where we needed to be emotionally for this week's episode, and I love your phrasing of it the total punch in the gut because you're right we knew that somehow for some reason sam or amelia was not going to show up i'm glad they didn't fall victim to the tv trope of amelia showing up and then sam not being there and leaving brokenhearted like actually did happen this in this episode but then later we see sam rush in late having missed her and thinking she never showed up and being heartbroken as well I, didn't, I, I would have been sad if that had happened because it would have been so predictable. I liked that Sam made the decision, but I was sad to see what appears to be the end to the Sam and Amelia arc. Though, I'm still thinking there's still life in this arc as well. Yeah, well, you know, it, Sam has been wishy-washy in the past, and I was glad that he made the decision. Right. That was a step forward for his character than from where he's been in the past. Yeah, this is this is a manly show. This is a strongly man, manly man's show. I mean, that's how I've always viewed Supernatural. So the fact that he made the decision that fits perfectly within the constraints and the theme of the show. At least with Jeremy Carver in charge of it. Right. It's more of the old school feel we used to have for this show. And so next up is the cast plotline. What I've got to say about this is, I'm really glad that the character is back to his regular personality. Because he plays a great straight man to Dean's wisecracking, sarcastic attitude. And this camaraderie between man and angel served nicely with allowing me to buy into Cat's playing referee and Sam and Dean's squabbles over the connections they made in the year when they were apart. I know Cass was somewhat manipulated into bringing the Winchesters into this week's rescue mission, but I feel like Cass is also back to seeing himself as Sam and Dean's friend believing that the two brothers needing each other is the best thing for them. Also, Cass thinks very literally, so if his focus is to go around healing people right now, like he did with that baby, then maybe he thought fixing the relationship with Sam was his way of healing Dean. So, Nico, what's your thoughts on Cass's role in this episode? Yeah, Dan, I have to agree with you. I really like that thought that this could be Cass trying to heal Dean. And I also have to agree that the best part of the cast story arc right now is that he's back to his original personality and that he is best when he is the straight man to Dean's comedic wisecracking side. I'm hoping that this change remains for the rest of the season and really the rest of Cass's time on the show because I cannot deal with a return to Sarah Gamble's cast ever again. Also, I'm intrigued by the whole Naomi and the controlling of the Angel story arc, much more so than any previous Angel story arc we've ever had on Supernatural. So that excites me as well going forward for Cass's story, which I think is what we're going to discuss next. Yeah, and that second part of Cass's story, which we are going to explain right now, kind of explain just what the heck is going on in heaven and why this newly introduced Angel Naomi is being played very well by veteran sci-fi actor Amanda Tapping has taken an interest in our favorite trench coat wearing angel from my standpoint i like the revelation we got in this episode about naomi being an angel who was trying to keep the fact that there was an angel talent from being discovered by crowley secret because it added a sense of urgency to the season's overarching story of closing the gates of hell that i think was needed or they need to have something like this with last year's leviathan story arc and that essentially led to the second half of that season being incredibly weak 
Good addition. The scene where Naomi forced Cass to kill Elfie, that was the angel that needed to be rescued, if you don't remember, made me see her as not a villain, but a character who wants to do the right thing, but is going at it the wrong way. Like Zachariah, the angel played, that was back in a couple seasons, played by the great Kurt Fuller, and Cass in season six. And if you look at it that way, Naomi is almost like Cass, looking at the corrupted season six version of himself in the mirror. And I think seeing those faults from Cass's perspective in Naomi will motivate his redemption to stand up and take back control over heaven, probably to prevent Naomi from disposing of the Winchesters. Essentially, that means I am foreseeing Cass's ending on this show, I mean him retaking his place as the boss in charge of heaven, with the process of seeking redemption for his mistakes, providing the experience needed to now make him a proper leader for heaven, unlike what he was in season six. So, Nico, am I on to something with this crackpot theory, or do you have some other prediction in mind? You know, Dan, I like that crackpot theory, and I think it has serious merit. I also think there is a possibility that Cass will be called upon by Naomi to kill the Winchesters and will be able to resist the influence or whatever hold she has over all of the angels under her control and will rebel against her, much like in your theory, but that he will sacrifice himself in his efforts to save Sam and Dean and thus will die as his penance for season six. Either way, we are in for a great story here with Cass and is not something I thought we could have said before this season. So good stuff. Yeah, the sacrifice makes more sense. Especially after what we saw on another show, which we'll get to in a little bit. Right. But yeah, it, that penance, that does make sense. That's logical sense. And also, I can see almost like a swan song thing happening between Dean and Cass. Okay. Uh, on the control thing. That that's what breaks him. Kind of like how, you know, Dean kind of broke Sam in the same way to the swan song episode. Yeah. All right. And moving on to smaller plot lines in this episode, Kevin showed up for a scene where he revealed that he ditched his mom to totally focus on deciphering the demon tablet. And interestingly enough, this set up a student teaching the master situation, from my viewpoint. As Kevin being devoid of his family showed Dean its importance. It kind of got him back to that goal of wanting a family or keeping family around him. And on that note, I think it's important for this dynamic to be set up between Dean and Kevin, or at least for them to have a friendship, because I think it will play heavily in Jeremy Carver pulling off a successful endgame for this series, which I will get my theories on in just a minute. But first, we're going to have Nico tell us his thoughts on Kevin's role in this episode. You know, I think the Kevin's storyline this week was the most superfluous and was only really there as a means to get the demon bombs to infiltrate the demon hideout where the angel Alfie was being held. Yes, he had his whole going to the desert speech that gave Dean a view into the importance of family and having loved ones to keep you human and remembering what you're fighting for, but was not really critical to this week's story in any major way. I didn't dislike it. It just, it was probably the least critical to this right. week's story. But I think it was just a good recap on showing where he is and reminding us that he's still in the scheme of things. Yeah. Because we hadn't Agreed. seen him for a while. Yeah. And just mentioning him was getting a little tired. Yeah. And Benny also had a small part of the episode, which made me glad to see that he and Dean were still in a good place, despite what happened with the Hunter Martin. Because I really like this new character, to the point that I felt really bad for Benny when it was revealed the guy was basically starving to death when Dean called to tell him it was the end of the line. And Benny was just way too proud to say that he desperately needed his help. So, Nico, where were you with Benny showing up in this episode? I, too, loved the introduction of Benny this season and was glad to see him show up in this episode. I thought it was necessary, considering the gravity of his appearance in the mid-season finale and the cliffhanger of having him to go on the run. I was sad to hear it was the end of the line for Benny and Dean, which makes me think that this means Benny's going to go 
or is going to fall off the wagon and Sam and Dean are going to have to eventually come after him and Dean will blame himself for not keeping better on top of the Benny situation and staying friends with him to keep him on the right path or he's going to blame himself for all of Benny's kills if Benny starts killing people which I think is where it's going to go either way I think this is the end of a good Benny character and he's going to probably go bad soon I don't think it's going to be bad for the show I think it's going to be interesting I just am sad to see this good vampire character go it's going to be a, a solid story arc for Dean that's really going to drag him through the ringer. Agreed. And he's going to feel like it's his fault. That all that stuff could be interesting. And it, and it's not a whiny, wimpy story at all. No. At all. It, it's not him being... Because there's been some issues in the past with Dean being wimpy or just kind of being a stick in the mud. And this is a much better way of handling that. And honestly, with this episode, all these things were good. It was a good episode. Just the way it ended was a little bit debatable. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to pot right now. It just was a little concerned. And as I said, with starting this conversation off, the several overarching plot threads weaved throughout this episode were all dealt with in a timely fashion. But what annoyed me is that they were basically wrapped up with Dean cutting off his ties to Betty and Sam shutting down his romance with Amelia. I honestly thought these plot lines were going to carry us through the second half of the season. But now with them gone, I'm kind of giving nervous that we are going to get a lackluster second half of the season like last year because betty and amelia introduced new concepts to supernatural that really gave it the shot of the arm it needed since the season five finale i guess the good news is that we still have kevin who's a solid new character though he's weak in this episode but he's still solid and we could get an episode with the Winchesters having to face a Betty that's fallen off the wagon due to starving to death. But I do not know how Amelia could fit back in the story, which is unfortunate since it means an end to the flashbacks that added a lot of oomph to many of this season's episodes. So Nico, do you think somewhat wrapping up these plot lines at the end of this episode will lead to another lackluster second half of the season? In my opinion, I feel like this is where the true test to prove this show is back on track will occur. Dan, there's every chance that it could mean that the season could go to hell very fast and turn into a terrible second half like last season that only had one or two decent episodes. But I just don't see that happening this year. There's still so much going on. And as I mentioned before, there's the great angel story arc. And I think Benny is going to go bad, as I just mentioned, and that will lead to a fairly good story arc. And you agreed with that with me on that. Oh, part. yeah. And for a few episodes to give us a change up from the angel story arc. So I think that Benny is going to be maybe a three or four story arc thing. Two minimum, up to probably four, and we're going to get some good stuff. So I'm not too worried that this is going to be a terrible second half like last year, or even be less interesting than the first half let's keep an eye on things and we'll you know we'll keep the positive thoughts but we'll still keep an eye on things but i think this year's second half will be much better than last year yeah, there are some things to look forward to get episode titles and guest stars like felicia yeah. day next week felicia day next week my love yeah there's an episode something like everyone hates hitler or something like that right. coming up too and that's intrigued me so i don't know what that's about but that seems like oh this could be fun too so i i think you're right on that again i just don't, i don't know what they're gonna do with sam here yeah i'm not sure yet so hopefully that'll work out hopefully it'll be good and i, I really do i hope there's enough going on i think there is i was just surprised to see this much wrap up on this episode like, I thought it would just be a little more open-ended than it was at the end of this. True. Okay. And finally, and Nico, I really hope you have an argument that proves otherwise. Actually, I beg you to have an argument, because it just make me feel a lot better, got less nervous about this next half of the season. I mean, you kind of made me feel better with the last point you made, but I gotta say this here, just throw it out there. Didn't Sam and Dean cutting off their relationships with Amelia and Betty, respectfully, feel like going back to that same old theme of the Winchesters sacrificing themselves for each other? 
I get that this show at its core is supposed to be about two brothers riding around in the car, hunting monsters, but it should only be that way, I think, while the show is on the air. Okay, with me making an educated guess that Supernatural probably only has about a season and a half left, they need to start working towards an end game. And the only way it really can be successful is by breaking out of this Winchester's, making sacrifices for each other, punk. And with Dean mentioning the line that Sam could leave the life of a hunter much easier than he could, I think a viable endgame would be Kevin joining Dean in the car. This would be the finale episode, the finale ending, while Sam raises a family with Amelia. And when Kevin goes to visit with his mom, because I think Dean's going to tell him that's important, Dean could stop by Sam's place as wild Uncle Dean to visit his kids. So essentially, I see Dean becoming a Bobby-like figure to hunters, to young hunters, mentoring them, mentoring, I guess, kids or young hunters who have been forced into the life. And his goal is going to try to give them as much of a normal life as possible while training them to deal with, you know, things that go up in the night. While Sam, I think, is going to go ahead and achieve his dream of becoming a, a married lawyer. So, Nico, I mean, what's your response to this? Yeah, Dan, it did seem to be going back to the sacrificing for each other, but not as bad as we've seen in the past, where they actually sacrifice their lives. But they are sacrificing their happiness, at least at this point, it seems that way. As for Dean and Kevin taking over the hunting duties while Sam leaves the life theory, we've talked about that theory before and agreed that that seems to be a likely way to continue this story after the series ends, so we have a satisfying end for both brothers. I'm not sure that that is the only way it can go, and I'm sure there is an even better theory that Jeremy Carver is going to come up with that blows our minds, but I like where your head's at, and I I don't see this as a problem. I, I see it as what you were talking about with Dean becoming that Bobby men- mentoring kids. I think that that's a really good end for Dean. I think he'll be a pseudo-father to a lot of new young hunters, and yeah, he won't have the life that Sam's going to have, but he'll have a satisfying end where he gets to be that mentor. He gets to be the Bobby going forward, and you you saw when he was interacting with Garth, even though Garth had taken over the duties, yeah. Dean was still the one giving Garth advice. And I like that. So I, I like that as a possible ending to this series. Yeah, it's it's not what I originally foreseen for him. But no. after season six happened, it makes more sense. Right. And actually, I like it better now, now that I think about it, where it is. Because, I mean, yeah, he got the family, but I don't know if he was really happy doing that. Right. I don't know if he was himself doing that. I agree. Yeah, so that makes much more sense. And God, we're just going to have to ride this baby out. We're going to get in the car and ride and sing Dead or Alive, and hopefully it comes out more alive than dead. Because that's what we're going to do with this Supernatural. But it's looking good right now, so let's hope it stays there. And Jeremy Carver, keep the train going, man. Doing a great job. All yeah. right. Now I think it's about time we jump into the highlight of this show. Yes. The series finale of Fringe. Final Crackpot Theories. Yes. The 12th episode, Liberty, and the series finale, 13th episode, An Enemy of Fate. To penetrate the Observer's headquarters and rescue Michael, their only hope for victory, Olivia must use her abilities to meet with some old friends and the fate of humanity is on the line because Walter plans to make the ultimate sacrifice to stop the observers before they were ever created. It's going to be difficult to put into words my feelings about this series finale. There will be no more fringe. That makes me sad. 
The show that defied so many odds, that was saved by a network with a track record of shoot first, and that delighted us for half a decade, ended its five-season run this week with back-to-back episodes, and it was a satisfying close to a wonderful run, and really my favorite thing. But Liberty was the beginning of the end, and Fringe started its final Friday with an episode that showcased just how good this show can be when it's at the top of its game. Right from the start, the episode was great because, as we predicted, Broyles was back. In short order, he was using his charm to get information out of a loyalist commander, which we all knew meant he'd certainly be found out, but he was doing it anyway. Also, when accused of being the dove, he smoothly replied, I'm more of a raven, don't you think? Perfect line, delivered perfectly. Lance Riddick was great in this episode, and just like the Nina Sharp episode a few weeks back, it made me realize just how much we've missed him this season. Oh, yeah. And really, the first few minutes of this episode were packed to the brim with awesome stuff. But the episode truly found its thematic power in the scenes that followed those. The title of this story is reinforced by the imagery and events in the story. Fringe has played with the Statue of Liberty a number of times as a symbol of the differences between the worlds, ours and the other side. In the parallel universe, it was seen in shimmering copper and lacking the signature green pantina or tarnish we're familiar with. In our side, in the Observer future, it's practically destroyed, which is certainly an apt metaphor for the destruction of liberties that the Observer has brought with their invasion, and we've been seeing all this season. Dan, so what were your feelings about how Broyles played in this episode? And also, did you like the visual metaphor of the destroyed Statue of Liberty as a striking means of showing the destruction of personal liberties and freedom brought on by the Observer occupation? You know, Broyles is a very proud man. I've always said that throughout the show. God, this was it just, it, he stepped it up all the way here. And he had some great lines, too. Yeah, he did. I, I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead here. But the second episode, he had a great line with the Observers, where, uh, you know, Woodmark's like, I have a feeling towards you. That means hate. <laughs> He's like, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> yeah, was that was like, great. Yes. And just, I mean, bro- this was awesome, Broyles. This was Lance Reddick's time to shine. Because these finale, they really gave it to him great. And yeah, the destroyed Statue of Liberty is very shocking. And I think it was great to show, okay, this is what these observers are all about and why they need to be stopped. Because the fact that they broke down such a proud, powerful symbol, not of the country, but of the world, that said right there, they need to be stopped. Yeah, and it was really brought home when they looked through the glass, the looking glass, to the other side, and it was in pristine condition as we expected, and that was really telling. And that kind of was a reminder, a throwback to the symbol of hope that a lot of immigrants had seeing the statue for the first time coming over. Exactly. You know, it gave him that hope. It gave him the idea that everything would be better. And, you know, Fringe did it beautifully by, you know, the team seeing that and getting that hope again. And they felt the same way because those people, that was such a great connection. It's such a powerful impact to that. And I also made us very excited to go back and see those characters. I agree. I was super excited when I I knew for certain that it was actually going to happen. Yes, yes, me too. Now, in terms of being a penultimate episode of a beloved series, it could be argued that this episode was really just an errand that Olivia had to run and it was dragged out for an hour. But here's why I don't care about that. The alternate universe. Yes. God, how I've missed the alternate universe. Oh, the memories we've had. They were flooding back in. Oh, and did you catch the little Easter egg that had Chelsea Clinton leading the polls in the most recent presidential election? I love that. It was a nice little touch. 
oh so many happy thoughts came back the alternate comic books the zeppelins which made an unexpected i thought they were going to be gone but they were still there i and, told you they'd be there yeah i told you we'd get one yeah and that was the point and that's partially why the supersized series finale was so satisfying for those of us who have been along for the whole ride and also this was a must for this episode finally after a season of being mostly in the background olivia got a chance to be an active player in the story again she did her superwoman thing again and popped in and out of universes like nightcrawler on steroids killing a few observers along the way as well so dan what was your favorite part about the crossing over aspect did you enjoy the very limited but still satisfying return of lincoln lee and bolivia or folivia however you want to describe her i would have liked to have seen walternate and i know you had your heart set on seeing charlie one more time but i guess we couldn't have everything but still, we got a lot. Yeah, this is, I mean, the best you could do. As I've said, and I said several times on the live show the other night that we had, the idea of the alternate universe is probably the most original idea we've ever had on television, at least out of the past 10 years. I remember when I first found out that the show was going to do this, my jaw hit the floor. That was a night where TV absolutely blew my mind. And I will never forget that night or that moment where Fridge introduced this concept to the television. It was groundbreaking. It simply blew my mind. And if they're going to do a finale, they had to pay tribute to something that made this show redefine television. And I think we'll make it go down in history as one of those great sci-fi series right up there with X-Files and Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to go there. We had to go back. And the way they did Lincoln was outstanding. For fans of this character, you had to be completely satisfied with the whole thing. Because they even gave time to have a little scene where he felt guilty that he left. Where he almost felt like he needed to be there to right. fight the observers because it was his world. That's where he came from. And I loved that reference. God, I love how he did get that chance to make up for it and get to save his world by taking out those observers. Yes. That was so awesome. Yeah, that's a great point, Dan. I totally forgot to talk about that, but that's that's a great point. So, I mean, I had to cheer. I'm sorry. That was awesome. <laughs> How about Walternate? Were you sad we didn't get to see him, or do you think that it would have taken away from the, the Lincoln Lee and, and Bolivia aspect? Well, I think I think it would have been hard. Yeah. With him that old. Yeah, he is 92. 90, and, and it was fun. I mean, the reference was great. And, and yeah. I, I really think that's all you needed to do. Sure. And I think his story was done. Yeah, I think so. The only problem I had with the crossover at all was that they didn't really age Lincoln Lee enough. I thought they did a great job at doing Bolivia and oh, making yeah. her look older. But I thought they could have done more with Lincoln Lee to make him look about 25 years older. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there could have been stuff of the, of the hair and some of the makeup they could have done. Yes. Because they did a very good, fairly good job with Nina and Broyles. Yes, very, very much so. Broyles, you could really see it. Oh, yeah. And that was excellent. So, I but, mean, I mean, that, that's such a small little yeah. thing to be complaining about. Well, it, and I so, said this to Michael. Maybe they age slower. Oh, on the other side? On the other side. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I, I don't know. The other thing, I don't know. That's just the thought process. Well, no, he's from our side. Right. So that would, maybe wouldn't apply. Maybe it does apply that because he crossed over, yeah. he ages slower or something. He's affected. Or they have some it. technology so you don't look as old. <laughs> and the, right. other, the other thing I forgot about is just how different the personalities are between Olivia and Bolivia. Yes. That was pretty... I, I forgot how apparent that was until this episode. So that was fun. Getting to see them do that little aspect of 
they get as well. Agreed. Now, regardless of whether you love the finale or hated it, if you've been a fan of this show for any time, now that it's over, you had to have felt something from this finale episode, An Enemy of Fate. Indeed, An Enemy of Fate stayed true to what Fringe was really about, not the intestinal slugs or the doomsday devices or the LSD. Okay, well, maybe a little bit about the LSD, but family and especially the love of a father and son is what this show is really about. The early scenes in this episode provide a crucial connection between Liberty and this finale. But the real core of the story starts when Peter discovers Walter's last tape, and it isn't about the time travel machine. It's a much more personal final goodbye from father to son. This video kicked off the three emotional conversations that really tugged at the heartstrings throughout this finale. Walter and Peter, Walter and Astrid, and Walter and Donald. For my money, the one that had the most oomph was Walter's goodbye to Astrid. And it wasn't just that he got her name right and said it was a beautiful name. It was the outstanding chemistry between John Noble and Jessica Nicole and the way they both conveyed a deep understanding of each other and a comfort with each other. Oh, come on. It was Gene. <laughs> Gene was good, too. Gene the cow was good, too. Yes. But this conversation is the one that caught me most off guard and caused it to get just a oh, little yeah. dust in my living room. Second would be Walter and Peter's chat, which was played more conventionally, but had the deepest impact, I think. This wasn't just two characters saying goodbye. It was two human beings who have worked with each other in sound stages in Vancouver and New York for the last five years, showing how much they'll miss each other. Powerful stuff. And elicited the best line of the season. You are my favorite thing, Peter. My very favorite thing. Really. That that almost made me tear up, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and the thing is, Walter, he loves so many things. Yes. You know, he has his music, and he's got his cravings, and he's got his cow, and he's got all these things and that, you know, makes him happy. And that was that was the best line he could have said. Yeah. That. I mean, it just fitted perfectly. Yeah, and finally, Donald and Walter's chat delivered the message that Friends wants you to take home. The take-home message. Fate is not rigid. It can be bent. It can be changed. And though the world may conspire against you, it's your loved ones who give you strength. It's the kind of sort of sappy mantra that can be put into the inside of a Hallmark card. But it's also what Fringe has always secretly been about. Sure, it was about science fiction and Fringe science. But at its heart, and I hope Dan and I have stressed this in our conversations over the years, this was a story about a father's love for his son. And this conversation really drove that point home. Yeah. So, Dan, which of these heartfelt, teary-eyed conversations had the most impact on you? Did any of them catch you off guard, and did it get a little stuffy in your room as well? Well, you know, I love the character of Walter. I've loved him since the beginning. He's one of the things that I look forward to watching every week of television when Fringe is airing. I mean, I, I cannot, my week of television has to have Walter in it. And I don't know what it's going to be like without him in it. I always look forward to him coming back. You know, he's he's like an old friend to me. You know, this fun grandfather that I get to hang out with every week. And to say goodbye, it's really hard. And really, I mean, I, he's probably not listening to the show. But I really got to thank the guy for making me smile every week. This character could always make me smile, always feel good inside. At this moment was just that ultimate chance for him to do it one last time for me. And normally we get one of these scenes, but here we had three. And it just was great. It was outstanding. And Joshua Jackson and him together in that scene was unbelievable. Yeah. And I sincerely hope that Joshua Jackson is really looked at for some really solid roles from here on out. This is an amazing reel for him to have, and I really can foresee him having an outstanding career 
if people are willing to give him a chance. Well, he's already had an outstanding career. Oh, but yes. Yeah, I, can, I, can, I see what you're saying. I think he will be ta- taken a lot more serious in a dramatic role and a dramatic capacity than maybe he has been in the past. Because, I mean, I really can see him breaking out into some very serious movie roles. I know he's done very well in television and you know, he's in those Mighty Ducks movies. Charlie Conway was great, man. Yes, but I really could see him breaking out. I mean, you know, he's got that acting ability that I could see him, you know, breaking out kind of. I don't know why DiCaprio keeps coming to mind, but those kind of serious roles. Okay. I could see him having. I don't disagree. Yeah, so that that's where I'm at with that. And then that final scene coming with September, I mean, that brought it all together too. Because, you know... I always felt like Walter felt he was so indebted to September. You know, he had to repay him for that moment where he saved Peter. Yes. Because, like, his first appearance, when we know that he and Walter knew each other, because as soon as he showed up, Walter was totally dedicated to him. And I felt like Walter finally got to repay him by teaching him the lesson that he, you know, re-explained to Walter about making his sacrifice. Yeah. And and we got that. And I, I don't want to interrupt the next point, but the whole thing with September, what happens to him in the end? I'm still on the fence about that one. And that's yeah, where it, those crackpot theories could still exist. Yeah, exactly. And, and that sort of leads right into my final thought. And that's the way things ended up happening makes the end rather interesting, in my opinion, because it goes against what Donald said about fate not dictating our lives. Donald made the decision that it would be him who would escort Michael into the future where he'd be prodded by doctors until they realized that creating the observers was a bad idea, letting Walter off the hook and seemingly resulting in a happy ending for everyone. It made sense, though. I doubt any of us really thought that was how it was going to actually play out. We were hopeful. Walter would stay with his son, Donald would be with his, and everyone could go for strawberry milkshakes afterwards. Yeah. But as Donald sprinted towards the wormhole, hand in hand with Michael, while the enemy was still shooting all over the place, he took a bullet and died right there, forcing Walter to shepherd Michael across to the future and leave Peter forever. Because all of a sudden now, the world is picky about time paradoxes, and the Walter in 2015 would cease to exist. So now it becomes fate rearing its ugly head again, and Walter's destiny must be fulfilled. Or... Maybe it's just stuff happens. You can argue that fate won and killed Donald to force Walter to go through with this plan. Or you could say that the loyalists finally actually hit a target and Walter made the choice to go through to the future. Fate versus free will is a question that Fringe set out to ask in the beginning, but like a wise old man, or maybe Yoda, chose not to answer allowing its students, us the viewers, to come up with our own answer. Fringe never wanted to solve the mysteries of the universe for us. It just wanted us to ponder them. And boy, Dan, did you and I theorize and ponder to our heart's content. And I loved it. Absolutely. What's most likely, in my opinion, is that Walter set out to atone for his sin of stealing Peter from the alternate universe, to make up for the stolen time he had with his son by giving Peter back the time he deserved with the daughter who was stolen from him. Sure, you can go ahead and argue that Peter never would have met Olivia if it wasn't for Walter bringing him over to our side, but I'm not going to dwell on that. Those two were meant to be together, and they would have found a way somehow, some way, some time. I don't know how it would have worked, but it would have worked. 
So Dan, did you like the way things worked out and how my theory that it would reset the timelines to the day in which the observers invaded actually came true? And did you first off call the white tulip scene at the end? And did you enjoy it as a payoff slash callback to one of our favorite episodes? And I'm going to give you a little time also for any final thoughts or major elements that I might have missed talking about that we need to talk about. All right, here's the deal with this. I'm going to always debate this show. To the end of time, I'm going to debate this show. I'm going to go back and forth on the end of this show over and over again. You know, I always kind of called that Walter was going to have to make some sort of sacrifice right. to balance out what happened with bringing Peter over to our side. And September, I guess, needed to suffer the same fate it ultimately did for interfering as well, because he was not supposed to interfere. Can we all know when you interfere with time travel, it comes and bites you in the butt? Yeah. So I think that's why he got shot. But part of me is I'm debating if I'm happy or sad that I was right on my prediction. You know, because this show has had a tendency to blow me away and and surprise me out of left field with some crazy theory. And the fact that I called the end somewhat bothers me because I'm like, yay, now I'm intelligent enough as a writer to pick up on those things. But then I'm like, oh, but I also like being surprised by this show. So I'm always going to be going back and forth in my head when anyone brings this show up about that. And that's what it should do. You know, you said last week, this show is always going to leave something for us to debate. And I think that's ultimately what it did. And that's what this show's about. I mean, it, it should do this. This show, yes, it's a story about a father and a son, but it's also about us making crackpot theories. <laughs> that's, that's what it's always been. And that's how I'll always look back on it is the Crackpot Theory Show. Yeah. And that's what it should do. It should get people talking. It should make you as a viewer stretch the limits of your imagination because much of the writers. I mean, it's an interactive thing, and that's great. The other thing I'm going to debate about is the end of it, the use of this episode. This was a great tribute episode. Okay, this is a great episode about saying goodbye. Yes. In terms of the battle of saving the world, okay, the good for the evil battle, I think last season's finale is stronger. But technically, if you look at that, that's now the end of the show. Right. So... That it's it's funny because again that was intended to be the finale because we really thought it was going to get canceled after that right. episode. Which actually, if it ended there, it would have been fine. Okay, we it got really would have. We got this bonus season, but now we're right back to the ending being the end of season four. Okay, we didn't know that at the time, so that's why we we're enthused to watch season five and excited about season five. But now that that's gone, I mean, really, we can look at season four because the ending, and that is, I think, more of the traditional ending. You know, the save the world, the heroes, save the day ending. God, this one had it too, but this was more of, I feel, Walter's story getting wrapped up and, and just kind of getting a, I would say, a prelude to everything. That last chance to see, you know, all those fringe events again. Yeah. Like like it was in those in that scene where they attacked the Observer base because they brought back the butterflies and the squid coming out of the guy's body and just all that fun, key, creepy, crawly stuff that freaked us out about this show. Right. But it was never really what the show was about to me. You know, I was always for the warm, warm and fuzzy stuff. But it was fun to go through those again. So again, I, I'm going to be debating this finale back and forth. I think it was great as just what Fridge needed to be. It had all those great aspects of Fridge that was great. But I'm always going to be, well, could they have done this differently? Could they have been on another way? And I think that was the writer's intention to keep us debating, keep us talking. And even if they come back and do a movie or they do something to wrap this story up, that story's still going to end with questions too. Right. So there's never going to be an end to this. And I hope that there's not. I hope that those questions inspire people them to come out with comic books about it. You know, because there, there's a period of time that in that episode with the observe, well, in that episode with the kid, those people that were moldy and stuff, he had drawn out all those comic book adventures. Okay, weren't those based on real events that happened to the Fridge team? Yes, yes, I believe so. So those are still stories that they could tell 
now with, without a younger. I mean, there's all this content that it can keep going, and I don't know if it will, but I certainly hope so, because it's built that way. Okay. So, I, I mean, I just hope it stands the test of time. I mean, were there things that you were on the fence about? Like, you liked it, but then there's part of you that was like, ah, oh, maybe they could have done this differently? You know, there wasn't anything that really stood out that I would have changed. Okay. I liked the way everything flowed together. Yeah, I probably would have liked some sort of a twist or something that really threw me. And I was like, whoa, one last yeah. time they just blew my mind. But the fact that it didn't happen didn't ruin the right. didn't ruin it for me or didn't really make it any less enjoyable so really there wasn't much they could have changed that really would have made me much happier with it and and really one of those blindsiding twists they don't work in finales really they don't it's a cliffhanger's thing it's a finale it's a season finale thing Yes. And there are shows that have tried to do the left field shocker in the finale, and the majority of those shows ended with the audience ticked off. Yeah. Or upset. So the Fridges writers never let us down, and so I think they went with the best option they could come up with. And I, and I feel it that way. I feel that Fridge, as a series, was a success. And I- and the finale was a success. I agree. Yeah. So is there any more? I, I so I having such a hard time closing this section out with you because it's the last I, time we're going to do this. I know. Unfortunately, I think that that's all the really the time we have or really the major ideas we wanted to cover. So we're going to have to call it a wrap on God. our last fringe section. Can you believe it? This is one of the shows that started this podcast. I know. And it sadly it's the it, reason why we have ata is those discussions fringe chuck those those were two of the shows that really every week we would be discussing and we thought hey we should do a podcast about this yeah. well <laughs> yeah and nico thank you for going on the ride with me on this one of the zero these discussion it's just that's been great it. i and, enjoyed it and you know how they say in casablanca you know we we always had paris well, we've <laughs> we always had, had fringe yeah i like that all right so that's how we're going to wrap it up. And all the listeners, you know, who joined us on the live show, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, our guest hosts that joined us that night. They had some great insight. And thank you, all of you listeners who started listening to our show because of your enjoyment of Fringe. We definitely appreciate you being a part of your show. And we hope that you stick with us, even though Fringe is gone. We've got some other great shows. God, we're going to cover some new stuff beginning next week with the following. So we hope some of you that like Fringe may jump over with us on those reviews. All right. So with that, we're going to move on now to the rundown section. You're watching CBS Sci-Fi's Pulp from Mondays FX USA Characters Welcome EMT We Know Trauma Yeah, and we're going to kick things off with Monday night's How I Met Your Mother and the mid-season premiere Band or DJ After Robin and Barney get engaged, they start planning the wedding. However, they still need Robin's dad's permission for it to happen. Meanwhile, Ted struggles with letting Robin go. Marshall and Lily have troubles with Marvin, who never stops crying. After leaving us with the image of Barney and Robin getting engaged before taking a few weeks off for the holidays, How I Met Your Mother didn't allow itself to slide back into the slump it had been stuck in for much of the early part of Season 8. I know I've praised the last few episodes, but I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, and I don't know if I have the power to declare that How I Met Your Mother has rediscovered its rhythm again, but I'm going to do it anyway. How I Met Your Mother is back. 
I've mentioned this before, but leading up to the pre-Christmas Barney and Robin engagement episode, an episode that many How I Met Your Mother fans now consider one of the best in the show's long history, there were already signs that the show had once again found its groove. The dumbing down of Lily and Marshall had dissipated, and the final page went so far as to reveal that many of How I Met Your Mother's season 8 missteps or inconsistencies were really part of Barney's complicated plan to propose to Robin, which made those bitter pill episodes easier to swallow looking back. In Ted's confession, Robin shouldn't be with Barney, she should be with me. Ted expressed to Lily his frustration with Barney and Robin's engagement in what I'm guessing is the only time he'll ever say that to anyone out loud. As we saw later on, Ted was back to being the honorable friend, sitting with Robin at McLaren's bar, telling her he was happy for her and Barney. I guess Ted will never really let Robin go, obviously ignoring Victoria's repeated warnings, but if what How I Met Your Mother shows us next is any indication, Ted won't let his feelings toward Robin keep him from finding the one. At a point later in time, Ted ran into Cindy, a former student-slash-woman he dated-slash-roommate of the mother, and her wife on the subway. It turned out that Barney and Robin did go with a band for their wedding, but the band canceled at the last minute. So it was a good thing that Cindy and her wife, Casey, ran into Ted that day because Cindy's ex-roommate, yep, that roommate, was a member of the best wedding band in the tri-state area and that a previously scheduled gig for May 25th had just so happened to fall through, making them free to play Barney and Robin's big day and give us hope for finally meeting the mother. And could it be this year's season finale? That's what I'm thinking. But before we jump into Tuesday night, Wu had some great thoughts on this week's episode that he'll share now. So take it away, Wu. Hey guys, this is Wu from Retro Reviews and the greatest Green Arrow podcast of all time, The Longbow Hunters. I just wanted to put my two cents on this week's episode of How I Met Your Mother. First of all, I love the, for the minor stuff, I love the little, like, sibling rivalry between Lily and Ted about who, who gets what for Barney and Robin's wedding. I'm, I love the little rivalry because Lily really is the mom of the, of the group, and I really love the dynamic of Ted being the dad, which he kind of is, and Lily being the mom. I need to, like, mention this before I forget. Robin's dad, we've always heard about, and we've seen two different actors play the same guy. I really like the... I really... It's very similar to, like, a lot of people that I know that have relationships with either their mom or their dad or their aunt or their uncle, that they really just don't click and they don't vibe, and they probably never will. And I love the little, like, truce that Robin and her dad had at the end of the episode, and I love how crazy Robin's father is. How much stuff will he make Barney do just to get get his consent on marrying his daughter, who he's really not that close with. And I love the whole scene in Barney's apartment with the rabbit. Well, first of all, I thought very much the cruel intentions going close thing with the rabbit. I um, wondered why they didn't do that scene in the bathtub. I have to say, though, I love Neil Patrick Harris's whole thing with, like, dyeing his hair black and jumping through hoops just to impress Robin's father, which really does show it. Like, it does prove to us, the audience, that he really does love Robin and will do anything for her to make her happy. He wouldn't have done this for Nora. He wouldn't have done this for Quinn, as we saw in the past. He wouldn't have done this for any of those two. And the fact that he's willing to do this without so much as an argument from any from him really does show that Barney's evolved and, like, he's not the same Barney we met in the pilot. I really enjoyed the the dynamic or the real life storyline of the consequences of adding somebody to your Facebook page, which I think 
everybody that's listening to this podcast, with the exception of my partner, Michael J. Penny, knows what I'm talking about. Once you add somebody to your Facebook, you're also adding their entire life. All these stupid apps and games that really hardly anybody uses more than just one or two. And the fact that you get just, like, overrun with this, like, garbage from Facebook, even though I like Facebook, a lot of unnecessary stuff on that, on that website and a lot of unnecessary things. And especially if you add your parents to Facebook, that's what's going to happen to you. Thank God my dad doesn't know how to even run a computer, let alone get a Facebook page. Speaking of parents, I love the whole dynamic, the Lily confessional scene on the roof to Ted. And I don't think that's a horrible thing to say. I think that's a very real thing to say and to actually feel, because especially if you're under the age of 35, or even if you are 30 to 35, that you as a parent, whether you're male or female, and this is something that I go through, even though I'm single and don't have any kids, as I'm getting older, I always wonder, am I going to be able to let things go if I don't accomplish my dreams? Is it okay to let them go, to get over them, because I have such a wonderful life, or could have such a wonderful life with a wife and a child? Something that a lot of people go through, and I... I don't think a lot of people know how to handle it, so I'm really glad that Lily said, I do regret a lot of things in my life. I do regret that, you know, my life stopped when I turned 29 and really hasn't really changed that much since then. Lastly, because I have to get this, well, actually two things I like, two things. Ted, like, confession on the roof, I don't think anybody was surprised that we kind of knew all the way back from season six, the end of season six, going in, even into season seven, and the reveal that he was at Barney and Robin's wedding. I've always assumed, and I'm glad it got validated tonight, that Ted is always going to burn him, or it, it has burned him, that Barney Stinson, of all people, got married before he did. Just because of the way Barney is and the way he is as a person. And I know people have ripped on the Ted character constantly ever since the show debuted. It is really disconcerting and really hard to see all your friends get married before you. And a lot of your friends may, and this is true in my situation, a lot of my friends that I knew in high school and in college are younger than I am and already getting married and already having kids. And the fact that Barney not only is getting married, but is getting married to the person that he always thought he was going to get, and that has to be hard for him, and I feel for him. Josh Radner really played that really well, not only on the roof of the apartment, Marshall and Lily's apartment, but also in McLaren's with Robin. Lastly, and this is a big thing, and this, re- this episode really sets up, I think, the rest of the series thus far. I really wasn't expecting Cindy and her life partner and their child. I was not expecting, you know, four months later, he... Ted's talking to them on the subway, and I, and I was not expecting. And it, good job by Carter Bates and Craig Thomas who wrote this episode, the creators of the show. Good job bringing back the fact that we found out in the 100th episode that Cindy's roommate is the mother of Ted's children. She is a bass player, and I love the fact that they met at a wedding. I'm getting really excited. They met at a wedding, and everything's coming full circle. And I cannot wait, not only for this season 8 finale, but for the rest of season 9. And like I've said before, season 9 should be it. Great way to set up the rest of the series. I cannot wait for the rest of these episodes. Well, i got to go before the machine cuts me off again. I'll see you guys across the airwaves, Dan and Nico, and listen to our Love Hunters podcast, guys.
so I'll see you across the airways. Bye. Thanks again, Wu, for your insight on How I Met Your Mother. We really enjoy your thoughts. We'll hear from you later again in the voicemail section for a little bit of supernatural news and opinion as well. So now let's move on to the bones section. So take it away, Dan. All right. We had two episodes of Bones. I know that's a little daunting right now, but uh, we had the episode The Diamond in the Rough and The Archaeologist in the Cocoon. Booth and Brennan dust off their dancing shoes when they go undercover as contestants in a ballroom dancing competition while investigating the murder of a dancer murdered just days before audition for the show. For the second episode, a famous archaeologist who can't get published is murdered just as he discovers a career-restoring find. The Jefferson team is tasked with the investigation. I'm not going to lie to you guys. The way that Bones has been going lately made it take a lot of motivation for me to watch two back-to-back episodes. Now, this is coming from a guy who three years ago got quite enjoyment out of binging through three or four episodes of Bones in a row on Netflix when I was trying to get caught up with the series. Anyway, the first episode was exactly what I thought it would be. Another indicator that Bones is running out of gas. Because the selling point of this mystery relied on the success of Fox's number one show over the summer. So you think you can dance. Yes, I know a scripted show relying on a reality show for success looks bad, but here it looked like Hart Hansen was desperately begging for someone to save him from the big bad Fox cancellation monster. As my sister revealed to me that this episode actually featured contestants and judges from the popular dance competition show. And that's just the tip of the iceberg on what made everything outside the lab in this episode absolutely horrible. Because Bone went back to its because Bones went back to its same chronic problem of portraying Brennan Booth wildly out of character. I mean Bones wanting to be in a dance competition because she saw it on TV. What happened to her whole spiel she gave Booth about not wanting to own one a couple seasons ago? And how did Booth learned how to be a dance teacher from his mom when I thought she was never really in the picture because she died or something and that was why his grandpa raised him. I guess the only saving grace about this episode was Angela having the issue about how restoring the faces of murder victims was going against her passion to create beauty through her artwork because this was a very intriguing conflict for her character in earlier seasons that was dropped. And I'm kind of glad it's back because things have seemed just too perfect for the supporting characters on this show. And I think this is a good conflict to have without them jumping the shark with something crazy like Angela having an affair behind Hodgins' back or something like that. As for this second episode, I was so distraught by the first hour I had to wait 24 hours before watching this next one. But ultimately what we got here was an episode that left be pleasantly surprised, as it was a good episode. And no, I'm not talking season 8 good. I'm talking season 1 through 5 good, or at least it lived up to that quality of episode, because this episode featured one of the most accurate portrayals of Brennan I've seen in a long time. I also liked how this episode remembered that the Jeffersonian is an institution that's for more than just solving murders. Because this week's murder connected to a, I guess, a murder that took place thousands of years ago, which helped Clark uncover the heart-wrenching tale of the missing link between Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, were it not to be called cavemen. Now, if this episode had aired on its own, I would have been left satisfied, because it accurately captured the reason why people got into boats, for its ability to to present intellectual mysteries that take a fascinating look inside the world of forensic anthropology. However, with it being a part of this two-hour package, I was left scratching my head. Because why would the people behind this show put together something like the dance competition episode that screams, we're so desperate, we need to ride on the coattails of a successful show. 
would this second episode prove the writers can still produce good episodes just by Bones standing alone got its two feet? So, Nico, kind of what's your thoughts on all this? And uh, did you have any quick thoughts on the episode, if you got any? Yeah, Dan, you know, I, I totally agree with you on both episodes. The first one was atrocious. It was everything that is wrong with Bones. And then the second one was everything that is right with Bones. It really was... Two different shows. Two different shows, exactly. It's like a bipolar writer wrote the two different... Or a bipolar showrunner selected the two story arcs, you know? It just really was off the wall. And we here had to take more than just 24 hours between watchings. (laughs) We watched one on Tuesday and one on Friday night. Or no, I'm sorry, Saturday night. Yeah. So... It really, it, it we we just couldn't, and then we were like, oh, this one was actually pretty good. Yeah, you know, the the mystery in the second one was was nothing special, but everything else in the episode worked together and really we saw sweets doing a good job he was pretty much back to what we loved about sweets yeah we you know booth and brennan were in character and yes they went a little overboard with her competitiveness but that's not outside of her character that's something we saw early in the series so i have to agree dan i i I did not like the first episode it it made me it soured me for a full five days yeah and this bones. poor episode the second episode got a bad rap because of that oh absolutely if they'd yeah. shown them in the other order it would have been so much better and i mean you and i both we knew going into this the, the dancing one was going to be terrible yeah terrible and that was the one they kept advertising too yeah it was almost unwatchable yeah i mean it it's it serious if if i had been watching it all by myself i would have fast forwarded through the the entire dance sequences like the entire story arc and just gone with anything that was in the lab and 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 i I don't think i would have lost anything because it was so bad that even though they were giving us vital information to the mystery i wasn't getting it because it was so bad yeah so really it was just and and bones might be up for two good episodes in a row yeah with palant coming back next week right yes Except I could see that going a little too over the top on the intensity. Okay. That's why I'm a little worried about this. But uh, we'll see. I, I don't know. Normally, the overarching story arcs have been Bones' strong suit. So hopefully they can just keep the power trip going with that. I just worry Hodgins is going to do something really outside the box that's going to make us mad. But we'll see. Okay. Let's move on to Tuesday's shows, though. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to kick off Tuesday night with New Girl and the episode entitled A Father's Love. Jess tries to help Nick repair his relationship with his con man father, but Nick worries that his dad is only using him in a scheme. Elsewhere, Schmidt and Robbie team up to win back Cece. This week's New Girl opened with a rousing game of Feely Cup. Yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. All right, Nick. We believe in you, man. Tell us, what's in the cup? That's a hard one. Mm. Too many carrots. <laughs> Fingerling potato? <laughs> Dumbest boy in all the world. How 
are you so bad at Feely Cup? You are awful at this game. Seaglass? I'm overthinking it. If his life depended on this, he would die. Battery. When are batteries squishy? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I know it's not a battery. I'm kidding. Nick. What is it? Nick, will you be paying for bonus time? He can't. He is all out of quarters. Which was soon interrupted by a surprise visit from Nick's father, Walt, played by Dennis Farina. In truth, the debut of Nick's father wasn't quite as memorable as the introduction of Jess's parents in the Thanksgiving episode, but it was about as much as you'd expect from Nick's upbringing. Obviously, Nick's youth wasn't the best, and it was interesting to see another side of him that we hadn't seen before, so that was fun. Still, Nick's skittish interplay with his father and Jess as well was funny, and the shady back alley deal that transpired delivered some amusing physical comedy as well. Some that back sweat, no pants dancing, etc., etc. All of that was good stuff. Take like off your clothes. Why would I do that? Why just take, take off it your off. Take it off. You're not wearing a white. I would like you to defend me here. No, no take it off. Take it off. No, no, Dad. no. Take it off. Take off your clothes. Take off your clothes. Take off your pants. Take off your pants. Now dance. All right, all right, all right. Look, look, he's got no wire. He's not. He's not a policeman. He's guys. I'm not wearing a wire. I'm not a cop. In the end, though, Walt's time on the show never really went anywhere. Even though some of the father-son stuff approached what could have been a resolution, it was all kind of thrown away at the end when Walt flaked the next morning and just kind of pieced out at the end of the episode. Meanwhile, though, Schmidt's storyline saw the return of Robbie, played by Nelson Franklin, who was caught in the same boat as Schmidt, your basic broken-hearted spying thing on Cece. It's it's cool that the writers found a way to incorporate Robbie back into the overarching storyline again, especially considering Cece isn't with either him or Schmidt. It's good to see that because Robbie was hilarious in the first half of this season. The unlikely duo's double-edged banter added a fun dynamic to Schmidt's otherwise creepy stalking of Cece. But it's like they say, how do you eat an elephant, Robbie? With chopsticks. What? Slowly with chopsticks. That's no, chopsticks. In a taco. What? Yeah, elephant tacos. Elephant taco. Who eats elephant tacos? It's not even a saying. Oh. One bite at a time, Robbie. One bite at a time. Yes, one bite at a time. This is what I'm thinking. I use my superior powers of manipulation and persuasion to get Cece to take you back. Once we've neutralized the subcontinental threat, I smite you. I particularly enjoyed their talk of defeating Indians and smiting each other at a later point in time. Their one-shot team-up was easily the highlight of the episode, and they loved saying, White guy power! Another solid episode with quite a few laugh-out-loud moments that I really enjoyed. All right, and we're going to move on to the Justified episode that shouldn't be confused with a popular children's book called Where's Waldo? See them Raylid tangles with members of a dangerous family. Meanwhile, Boy targets an unusual preacher. Just like a smooth-talking Marshall can get away with being an asshole, simply by flashing some charm, Justified's mastery of dialogue and character depth often allows it to go slightly off the rails of television's well-worn tracks with little complaint from me. 
Last week's season premiere was an intoxicating cocktail of Welcome Back to Justified that I couldn't praise enough. If you heard last week's episode, you know what I'm talking about. It was a standalone story of a man in Raylan's trunk and a foundation-laying introduction to a season-long snake-juggling adversary and a frigid cold case linked to Arlo. That structure to me was great in that the takeaway was, one, Raylan caught a bad guy. That's always good. Two, we're in for a wild ride this season. It was a perfect combo of satisfaction as one short story ended and a much bigger one began. Tonight's Where's Waldo turned out to be more of a puzzle before we even knew we were handed a puzzle and had all the closure of about an incomplete sentence. But once again, it was the charm of Harlan County and the characters that populate it that really made Where's Waldo and all of its what-the-hell-is-going-on-ness so enjoyable this week. There was a trio of concurrent stories going on. Raylan, Art, and Tim searching for the mysterious Waldo truth. Boyd and his gang colliding with Billy the Preacher. And some totally random dude bare-knuckle fighting and harassing Raylan. The third of these stories made the hour truly unique. And depending on your level of patience, uh, maybe a little bit confusing. Halfway through the episode, I was saying to myself, uh, what? Excuse me, what? <laughs> but can someone tell me what is going on? Because this guy just walked into a bar in the opening, and now he's punching guys in front of frat boys who are betting on it, and I still don't even know who he is. But by the very end of the episode, we found out that he's Randall, the blonde bartender Lindsay's husband. Lindsay's the girl that Raylan's date currently dating, or sleeping with, or living with, or whatever it is. The Randall reveal was an interesting choice because it appears to be going in the opposite direction of the other two stories. Randall's story worked backwards, giving us a whole bunch of extraneous details. He's an adult version of a party clown for douchey rich kids who bet on bare-knuckle boxing in their backyard. Before getting to the really the most basic info, how he relates to our friend Raylan and Lindsay, and all the while Raylan and Boyd were on adventures of clear forward progress, you know, so the two main two of the main story arcs are progressing forward, and the, this Randall one it seems to be going backwards, which made it amazing. It's set up a ha- odd herky jerky pacing, but that's okay. I like that, as if we you know kind of sat down on a bar stool and started conversing with a, a random gentleman next to us, only to find out he was there to meet sort of the same people we were in the bar to meet. And when you think about it, that's a fascinating way to meet someone in their own context without any reference. It was, in a sense, exactly the same way you might go about meeting someone new in Harlan County if you just strolled down Main Street. And being such a tight-knit community as Harlan County is, it wouldn't be surprising to later say to Boyd or Dewey or Ellie May, oh, you know this guy too? I met him on the street. I can feel, you know, I can sort of feel myself waist deep falling into this rabbit hole on this one, but I only overanalyze it because I'm still trying to decide if I loved it or only liked it. I probably won't know until the end of the season, but regardless, this season just keeps getting better and now once again seems to have a possibility of having two or more big bads, which I said last year didn't work, but I'm super excited to see if it does this year. Finally, that country bumpkin family was awesome. The tweener boy shouting, perverts! Perverts! As Art, Raylan, and Tim descended upon their roadhouse was a great little opening into their world before shoving us into it. Following that, with the family out on the porch with their rifles and their mama telling them all to put their guns down, is exactly what makes this show awesome. I've always loved how, in the face of guns, 
characters in this show remain remarkably civil and casually blow off even the threat of death. It's something that's maintained Justified's credibility in its realism, and I haven't spent any time in Lexington, Kentucky, let alone any part of rural Kentucky, but it just sounds right to me that that's the way people would act. (laughs) And even if it isn't, it's true to the world of this TV series and has been for most of the series run. So really, this is great TV writing. I'm going to harp on this every week because it really is one of the best written TV shows out there. Where's Waldo lived up to the expectation of its name and was an excellent piece of television. Can't wait for next week. All right, yeah. Let's move on to the show on Wednesday night that's taking the television world by storm. Again, it's going on the same intensity as Justified. Again, it's probably a little bit tamer on the violence. Let's talk about the Arrow episode, Burned, which kind of reminded me of the movie Backdraft. Oliver, his confidence undermined by his defeat at the hands of the Dark Archer, goes up against a psychological traumatized firefighter. The man has started committing acts of arson while calling himself Firefly. Meanwhile, Thea tries to cheer her mother up, and Tommy throws a benefit for the firefighters. Alright guys, with this mid-season return of Arrow, I felt it used a story about Oliver understanding why he is needed as the vigilante to make us, as the audience, see why this show needs to be on television. Because it's damn good. In fact, this episode worked magnificently as a mid-season premiere, since it highlighted Arrow's best qualities to reinvest current viewers and get new viewers into the show. There was great empowerment given to the strong female characters, but the flashbacks to the island became even more intense. Oliver's morality issues regarding his family got a deep emotional impact, and we had a villain terrorizing the city by killing his victims in a terrifying manner. In addition, my favorite character dynamic on the show between Oliver and his partner, Dig, continued getting better, to the point that if you need someone to give you a strong pep talk to get you out of bed on a rough morning, David Ramsey, the guy who plays Dig, is who you should call. Seriously, the guy could just read the phone book in a profound voice, and I would be inspired to jump off rooftops firing arrows. As for the villain Firefly, a.k.a. Garfield Lins, his interpretation here on Arrow as a disgraced firefighter was much more interesting than the comics having him set up as a special effects man who went broke, especially who went broke, especially for television. Because on crime-fighting shows like this one, Person of Interest, or even Castle for that matter, they normally deal with corruption or conspiracy within the police department, but going the fireman route felt like something new for a change but I was glad to see they maintained the sense of honor that exists between firefighters through Joanna's brother. And that leads me to another thing that made this episode of Arrow a highly successful mid-season premiere, was the writer's decision to move forward with plotlines that weren't working or stopped moving in the first half of the season. I know the character of Joanna was a big issue that Michael talked about on the Logbow Hunters Arrow podcast. And I was glad to see that they gave her a purpose in this episode, developing things between Laurel and the Vigilante, but then wrote her off when realizing they couldn't do any more with the character. Also, it gave. It was also nice to see them move forward with building the nightclub over the Arrow Cave, because it gave Tommy something to do other than freeloading off of Laurel, because it seems like he's at her apartment all the time. As for some quick quarrels about this episode, how did Laurel and Tommy get out of the nightclub when they were shown being trapped inside? Should there have been a scene where Oliver was shown saving them? 
At the same time, I hated how just as they got me warmed up to Detective Lance with the scene where he let Laurel keep the phone, they made me hate him again as it was revealed he was using his own daughter to track the vigilante. As I said before, I will keep saying it until they fix it. Detective Lance needs to be a likable character if they want to evolve Laurel's character into Black Canary or it's all going to be in vain, since Detective Lance's death is the catalyst that will make her into a vigilante, and will probably be that big Season 3 turning point for the show. Although in the grand scheme of things, these are just minor issues, especially when it comes to just this episode. As Arrow did the job it was supposed to do, I'm still running strong and making me really psyched that it's back on the air. So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this really enjoyable mid-season premiere for Arrow. The midseason finale ended on a dramatic note as Oliver's Christmas was pretty much ruined by his first combat encounter with the rival archer and ruthless mastermind Malcolm Merlin or the Dark Archer. Just like his viewers, Ali took a several week vacation, but he hasn't exactly refreshed and wasn't ready to hop back into action as the vigilante as this episode burned opened up. I wasn't expecting to see Oliver as badly affected by his defeat as he was, but that allowed for some interesting drama as our hero struggled to get his head back into the game. I guess when you're doing a good job protecting your city and carrying out your father's wishes, you start to feel invincible, like there's nothing you can't handle. But then you get beaten, and you get beaten bad. And it rattles you and your emotional and mental core. And really, Oliver couldn't recover from that on his own. The recurring theme of characters struggling to overcome personal tragedies sort of lent a nice dramatic consistency to this episode across multiple characters. For Moira, it was the depression brought on by the knowledge that her collusion with Malcolm Merlin may have cost her two husbands now. For both the Lances, it was the growing realization of just how far they are stepping outside the law with their partnership with the Hood. Even Laurel's friend Joanna got in on the action as she dealt with the murder of her firefighter brother. It was an interesting move on the writer's part to finally give this character a reason to be on the show and then kicked her to the curb at the end of the episode. I'm not sure why they did that, but I guess that was their decision. My reaction to Detective Lance and his role in this show tends to vary from week to week, and I know Michael had issues with him early on in the show. That's but so I awesome. really I really enjoyed the direction the writers pushed him in the final minutes. I know you said you hated him for it, but I thought it was actually really good. His seeming acceptance of the hood and his relationship with Laurel was too easily won. The truth was much more interesting that now Lance will be using his daughter as an unwilling weapon against Oliver. I, I can't wait to see that blow up in his face. You know it's going to. <laughs> yeah. And Green Arrow has to know something like this is possible. This episode was also notable for introducing another familiar DC character into the world of Arrow. This time it was Firefly's turn, played by Andrew Dunbar, as was the case with the Royal Flush Gang, however, Firefly bore little resemblance to his comic book namesake in terms of appearance or motivation. You talked about this, Dan. In the comics, Garfield Linz is merely a failed special effects artist who loves to burn things. Here, the writers attempted to give him more of a tragic backstory and a revenge plot to sort of carry out that kind of, you know, sort of revenge or motivation that sort of vaguely mirrored Ollie's own mission. And I think it, I agree with you. It was more 
more successful here, but maybe only marginally. I still don't think it was great. It, it's this, far better than him just being obsessed with fire. Yes, but I think that that is actually a more traditional arson yeah. motivation. Now, this whole backstory felt like an afterthought, though, and I think the script would have been better served focusing less on the whys of Lynn's rampage and more on the final showdown. It was there that the episode suffered from the apparently obligatory burst of lame dialogue. Oliver's, you're not afraid to die, you're afraid to live line was pretty bad. It was, yeah. But the fact that Lynn's response to the offer for help was too late, I'm already burned. That was cringeworthy. That yeah. really, oh God, when he said that, I, I almost turned it off. It was, it was like, oh God. <laughs> this isn't a comic book. Stop. Yeah. Overall, this was a good return from hiatus that really only had a few missteps that left me wanting more, such as some uncharacteristically poor dialogue and a weak backstory to this week's villain that we both, I think, agree was better than the comic book. Yeah. Still, is it? Good episode, solid. Yeah, it's not anything I'm going to write home about, but yeah. it, it it was good enough. Yep. So I think it's about time we move on to our last show of the week, yes, Thursday our last nights. Resort. <laughs> last resort with the penultimate episode, the pointy end of the spear. Chaplin attempts to surrender the Colorado. Meanwhile, Kylie and Admiral Shepard target the president. The penultimate episode of Last Resort continued the fast-paced, breakneck plot momentum from last week as the situation on the island and in D.C. continued to escalate. It was another exciting and increasingly tense episode as a powder keg situation seemingly reached a point of no return. Let me get my griping out of the way early, which mostly has to do with the issue that isn't the fault of the writers and is one that simply will have to be accepted given Last Resort's abrupt ending, which is the lack of a tangible main bad guy, or as we call him, a big bad. No doubt, down the line, they would have introduced who was pulling the strings behind the conspiracy, perhaps simply saying it was the president, making him an ongoing character on the series in the process. But there just isn't time for that, and with only one episode left, I doubt they're going to introduce the guy in the last episode. That That's always bad. Bringing Kylie's dad back in as part of the conspiracy at least gives her a personal connection to battle against, but there hasn't been enough time spent with that character to really hit home for us that this was a big betrayal. But again, there's only so much the writers could do with just a couple of episodes, which were already written, but obviously went through notable retooling in these ep last couple episodes, to wrap up an elaborate story with this many characters. That being said, I do hope that Secretary of Defense Curry appears next week, since he at least has been the one frequently appearing high-ranking member of the conspiracy and kind of the face of the big bad in a sense so far. I'm curious what those behind this whole situation could possibly have said to not only make Speaker Conrad Bully, played by Ernie Hudson from the Ghostbusters, back down from the plan to remove the president from power, but to claim he instead was behind it all and then kill himself on live TV, no less. But we certainly can imagine all sorts of horrible things, and the fact that they had such insidious influence is ultimately all we really needed to know. It'd be cool if we got the backstory, but really, that was enough. 
at least for this shortened you know, series. As with last week, Marcus was one step ahead, fully aware of the growing threat of mutiny, with an inside man, no less, and basically bringing it up to the face of both men orchestrating it. This paid off in moments that were both badass and highly emotional, as Marcus and Sam shared a sad drink together as the moment of truth approached. We didn't actually get any combat breakout in this episode, but we did get Grace making her decision on who she was with, firmly aligned with Marcus. It's a testament to the show, and I feel feel like I could have completely understand understood why she made either decision she had in front of her. I'm a little wary about the last minute return of Anders the Rapist, which seems like a pretty easy unsubtle creepy or creep to throw into the much murkier Grace Marcus and Sam and Prosser mess. But, you know, hey, once again, time is not a luxury here, so they have to get rid of all these character arcs. I'm pretty curious who else is going to make it out of this situation and this series alive. These 12 episodes have certainly done a strong job giving us cause to care about these characters before their story comes to a close next week. And, you know, that's all I really had to say about this episode. It was pretty good, really fast paced, kept us moving. Once again, you look at your watch at the end and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess this is over. And, you know, that's all I could really say. So for now, let's move on to a new section we premiered last week. Oh, yeah. a voicemail section with listener feedback and theories, including a nice voicemail from Wu about Supernatural this week. So go ahead and take it away, Wu. A call has been forwarded, for, 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 for forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey guys, it's your buddy Wuus, came from Retro Reviews and from Longbow Hunters. This week I wanted to give my two cents on Supernatural. I have to say, first of all, the minor stuff, there is no way that this is the end. This is the last time we'll see Benny. I, I can't believe they would set up a character like that this in this season, with this, with all of this, and not, you know, and not see him throughout the season. So, that's my thoughts on Benny. As far as Amelia herself goes, just in this episode, and, and also in the rest of this season, I think, I love this actress, I do, I love this character. And not just because of the obvious reasons that I've mentioned on several of these across the Airwaves podcast. I really like how she and Sam connect emotionally. I really like this actress's chemistry with Jared Padalecki. And I hope this is not the last time that we see Amelia just because of the, just because of like her chemistry and who knows, maybe she'll turn out to be an ally to Sam and Dean. As far as Sam and Dean go, I have to say, Michael J. Petty, my podcasting partner, has said he really doesn't like the constant back and forth between Sam and Dean. But with this, and yes, a lot of it's the old same stuff that they've always dealt with, but you know, that's what happens with the pilot, so I'm not, I'm used to it by now. But you know what, I really like well, that at the end of the episode, Dean really apologized to Sam, and you know, they have, they have, uh, I, I think they found a new depth of respect and love for each other's brothers, which I really like. As far as, I won't mention Crowley because I think you guys will probably mention it, I won't mention Alfie because you guys probably mentioned it, and I won't mention Kevin because he really wasn't only in one scene, and 
be willing to further the story. I have to say, I really want to know what's going up in heaven, and I really want to know Naomi's background and what she's really up to with Castiel. And I have to say, this woman is creepy. Creepy. Like, even when I was watching this, watching that scene with her in Cast with Man, I got, my skin started crawling. I could feel my skin crawl. This woman just unnerves me. Good luck on your live show for Fringe at the time of recording. It's Thursday. Please tune in, you Fringe fans. And please listen to Michael J. Penny and I on Love Ball See you guys next week. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, so that wraps up the Woo Train. Now it's time to move on to our closing. Nico, are you going to tell us what we're doing on our next episode? Yeah, on next week's episode, we're back in the full swing of things. We have reviews on our favorite shows, Once Upon a Time, Castle, Go On, Modern Family, Supernatural. And we're telling the truth this time. Yeah, we are telling the truth this time. Those all should be back unless something crazy happens. We will also round things out with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on How I Met Your Mother, Justified, Elementary, and the series finale of Last Resort. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Also, if you can't wait for our next ATA episode, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got ATA Retro Reviews, which covers past TV shows that were canceled or went out of their own terms. We also have got Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which covers all of the content that DC Comics provides for its fans, including Brian Q. Miller's Smallville Season 11, Green Lantern the Animated Series, and Young Justice. And we've also, last but not least, got ATA Slogmo Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which covers episodes of Arrow in greater detail than we do here on our rundown section. Also, if you want to contact our podcast with any of your crackpot theories, including your final crackpot theories about Fringe, you can contact us through email. Get our email is across the airways at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can click the like button on our page to access our Facebook. By liking us on Facebook, you can stay updated on our podcast releases, as well as the movie and TV news that Nico finds during the week, and some of those articles he reports on got our podcasts. For that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Your Twitter is Across Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just Across Airwaves. Or you can follow our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, you could also leave us a voicemail. What number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And we will play those voicemails on air. Also, we have a YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as movies, including Iron Man 3, Star Trek Into Darkness, The Lone Ranger, Man of Steel, a whole bunch of movies coming out this summer, so you can check that out. We also have a playlist on our YouTube channel, which features all the shorts that Cartoon Network plays during their DC Nation ad that we review on our DC Nation podcast. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast, for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our Podcast Box app, which will allow you to listen to our podcast episodes and stay in contact with our podcast through your iPad, iPhone, iPod, or Apple TV products. You can do that. I just got an Apple TV. I was checking out the podcast actually on my TV. So that was pretty cool if you want to do it that way. Also, for... Those of you on Android devices, we have an Android app, which you can download by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our page as well. So we've got both of those. And also, if you want to discuss any of the shows we cover with other listeners, you can join our ATA forums, which are available at acrosstheairwaves.com forums. So once again, for 
our other podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak. I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reistek. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and thank you, Fringe Writers, for five great seasons of an unbelievably excellent show. And thank you for giving us all our awesome crackpot theories that has made this show great. So see you guys. Have a great week. Jeffster lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.